Hi, it's Jeremy at Well May We Say. Usually we try to record a podcast that's not just listenable to, not just one where you can make out what the other people are saying, but also one that's decent audio quality, that feels smooth in your ears. We certainly don't like being the sort of podcast that would record a two-hour episode with Will Anderson and only realise at the end that the mics weren't working properly for some reason and Will was off mic the entire time. And yet here we are, annoyingly, just a week after pleading for more Patreon subscribers to keep the podcast running. We will be back to our normal quality next time. So, in the meantime, we had a two-hour episode. Will was a bit off mic. I've normalised it so that his audio is up and mine's hopefully down a bit. We didn't have separate tracks because I also cocked that up, meaning that we don't have... um, I couldn't mute me when I came in a bit too enthusiastically. Nonetheless, I think it's a worthwhile conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. And I (laughs) apologise that it's not the audio standard that we would like... Uh, and that we usually hit. So, without further self-flagellating, please sit back and hopefully enjoy the episode. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and Australia has never dealt with what happened. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 113 for Tuesday, 16th of December, 2019. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to the country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it, which is the big point of tonight's episode. And joining me to do that is Will Anderson. Hello, Will. Uh, it is now Will, may we say. For today's episode, at the very least. <laughs> Anybody listening to this, it will have been addressed. It'll it'll be called "Will May We Say," <laughs> but the episode title will be. I don't know that I can change everything in the I mean, the podcast feed. Just for, I, mean, I, I mean, should if I was taking it seriously. I've always had a vested interest in your podcast becoming a really really big thing and sort of yeah, getting "Well May We Say" back in the public lexicon as a common expression because then I can you know use that to. <laughs> Use a stupid pun name for one of my shows. I was going to say, how many have you got ahead? Like, nah, I've got about 50 up my sleeve, and I've certainly only got about another 20 shows left in me maximum. So I'm now at the point where I'm choosing between names. Oh, my goodness. some sort of, like, you know, actual quality, you know, uh, where I'm actually looking at going, is this a better name than this? Because I'm not going to use all these names. There are some that, sadly, you know, their time has passed as well. Oh. Like Wilf. Wilf would have been a good name for a show, but I feel like the, the era of people referring to things as Milfs and Dilfs and Gilfs is well and truly gone. And there used to be a uh, show called uh, Girls Gone Wild. It was, you know, a horrible, like, yeah. you know, uh, kind of exploitative, um, you know, sort of teen soft porn, you know, thing. And Which uh, we just know from Arrested Development, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I wanted to, they had hats that said Girls Gone Wild, and I always imagined having a Girls Gone, gone Will hat. Um, that would have been my version of the, you know, the parody Marga hats. Um, so that's probably gone. And there's a few that like are in that zone of like, uh, you know, at one stage I was thinking about doing a show about, you know, my struggles, you know, with my mental health a little bit and just also kind of trying to talk about some friends who had, um, 
you know, lost their battle with their mental health and I wanted to... And then I was like, could I call the show Mentally Will or would that feel like really on the nose? I feel like on the nose in this day and age. I feel like if that had been 10, 10 years ago, I probably could have called the show Mentally Will and everybody would have been like, that's fine. But, now, but then you might have regretted it later. Might be one of those I definitely would have regretted it later. But most of the things I did 10 years ago, I regretted later. So that would just fall into a vast category of bad takes on things I have had over my comedy career. Because I mean... When comedy in particular is one of those things that moves so quickly and because comedy, you know, at its best is some sort of reflection of what is going on in society, you know, the way that we talk about things, the language that we use and the way that comedy develops, it's why comedy dates so badly, probably more than any other art form, because, you know, it is about being reflective of the time in which we live. As soon as those times move on, you know, people are like, oh, Friends is a bit problematic. Yeah, but it wasn't a problematic show back then. It was a show that, well, I mean, I guess through today's eyes it was, but it wasn't intentionally being a problematic show back then. It's, it's kind of just in zeitgeist wasn't to be like, look at this edgy show Friends where they're like, you know, got heaps of, you know, light homophobia and that. That was, a, that was them reflecting the times in which we lived rather than it being some sort of trying to do those things for provocative reasons. So anyway, that's a very long-winded way of me saying that comedy... Comedy changes so quickly that I would look at stuff that I did three years ago or five years ago or seven years ago and the language I used or the take that I had or the perspective that I attacked that joke from and look back on it and go, ooh, you know, if I was doing that today, I would not tackle that topic in that way. But it feels like that's probably one of the things that, given that one of the things we want to talk about is how do we persuade people to come along and move in a progressive direction? Um on certain very specific issues, but more sort of more generally, and like a lot of it feels like what we've got at the moment, the way that um, Scummo has come back with uh, his pitch for more powers for, well, it's technically for religious fundamentalists, but the selling point is anybody who, who resents that those people that we used to make fun of, we used to, that I, I grew up detesting and now I have to treat them like human beings. Like it's pitched at those people and it almost feels like maybe maybe one of the things that, um, comedy can do is because it's always with the zeitgeist and because it's always developing it can bring people with it and it feels like sometimes a lot of the people who are um like don't, i don't feel like sort of people older older people a lot of their resentment is i liked that thing when i was young that thing made me laugh that was funny that that show from the 70s that faulty towels was great I love it. I don't want to have to adapt to. I don't have to acknowledge that there are any problems with that. Whereas that can also be a way of us growing, being like, that was what we we now see that now we can demonstrate how it is that we have developed past that, and that though, and like things that we weren't coming. We're not criticizing that because we always hated it and we were hostile to to the the people who were making it or anything like that. What we're doing is acknowledging that a thing that we actually liked can still do harm and through that do better and grow and like maybe that's a, a way to bring i bet there was shit in the faulty towers writers room where they were like there was no way we would do that sort of material in this day and age we mm. have moved beyond what they were doing 20 years ago before faulty towers i bet they had those conversations and in the same way as they had them it's okay to 10 years later or 20 years later watch faulty towers and go oh man there's some racism in this that would not play today you know there's some other you know there's some violence to women issues and a few other things in this that... Balance to Spanish people. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly, right? And yeah. some of that played 
for fun and knowing how ridiculous it is. Mm. Like, you know, the joke is that this person is so racist or sexist or yeah, ridiculous, right? There's still space for that sort of humour when you're mocking the person who is being the bigot rather than mocking the people at the bottom of the chain. But there was also an element of mocking the people who was the bottom of the chain. You know, it, it went hand in hand. Does that devalue Faulty Towers as a piece of work of its era? Absolutely not. Well, cause you can if see you can see what's today, good in it and what's problematic at the same time and acknowledge that. Both can be true. Yeah. It can be fine for when it was, and you can also say you wouldn't make like something like that today. And for reasons. Like, it's like, if... if I don't think that people... People are, like, really determined never to acknowledge that they were wrong about something and that that... Um, and like one of these people always say that thing where they're like, "Oh well, you couldn't make forty tales today," and I'm like, "Well, you don't have to." No, they made forty tales back then. You it could make something exists. that was that had the positive elements of forty tales today. You just wouldn't make the elements that are that you now know better. Like but as also, you grow older, you change and you develop and you learn. You understand the world better. You understand the impact of what your words right. on people. And but also, like that's not to say there isn't a place for like shock humor or humor. Like, I mean, I love South Park. You know, I know a lot of people have problems with South Park, but I think that it is you know, an incredibly brilliant satire of our times. And I do subscribe to the idea that they, you know, pretty much go after anybody pretty much equally if they need to, often within the same story. I have a lot of hate with them. I, I, uh, there are plenty of things that they do when they're punching up that, that works really well and is really biting. Yeah. And I just have a problem when they punch down. And yet, I, yeah, and funnily enough, like, I, you know, in my own humour, like when I'm making my own stuff, um, you know, that's probably a line that I, I tend to err on the side of like, you know, is this joke punching up? And what's it's a pretty good guide, isn't it? But, it? but it's not an all-solving position. Because I would make the point with South Park that I think that they have an overall perspective of what it is they do, that the punching down fits within the punching up. And often the punching up works because of the punching down in the same breath, that they can make you think that they're doing one thing one second and then twist it to be doing something completely different, which means that instead of having a whole bunch of people who agree with you, I think South Park has more people who don't know where it stands than pretty much anything else. If you yeah. go and see me or Tom Ballard or, you know, someone where you're like, I kind of get the gist of what this will be about and I can pretty much comfortably go in and I kind of have this similarish worldview. Um, I think you have audience members who don't necessarily, though. I, uh, think, you, I think you you persuade your no. appeal is not just... I agree. Listeners of this podcast. But it's the same, like, you know, it's not like the opposite of, like, the Joe Rogan world or the whatever else that other world would be. Yeah. Like, what I like about, you know, I don't think that there should be some, you know, universal rule that is, you know, all comedy must punch up or all comedy must do this. The sort of comedy that I enjoy versus the sort of comedy that I make can be two very different things. And I tend to support the principle of punching up in the comedy I make because that's a reflection of me out to the world about what my perspective, what I want to give to the world is. But it doesn't mean I can't enjoy other people who do things differently to what I do. I just, I, I do believe that the only shit that I don't like, and I guess this was the point we got to in the first place and where we'll start with this conversation, but is this idea that you can't criticise the past or that it is some way damaging us to us to admit that we've made mistakes, and it is this idea that we live in of perfect solutions. Because this, to me, is your real problem that goes over everything, is that we've become a society who is addicted to perfect solutions. Have we? Absolutely. Because we think that there's someone who can come and fix everything, that this person or this party or this 
whatever, that we can stop the boats. No, you can't. It's, you can't stop the boats. It's much more complicated than that. But we are happy to sign up to these ideas around simple solutions rather than acknowledging that, or, or this side's right, Bernie will fix everything, or Trump's right, Trump will fix everything. It doesn't fucking work like that. That the world, If we want to fix the world, we have to start admitting that whoever we vote in, they're going to make a whole bunch of mistakes and they're going to get a whole bunch of things wrong. And we've got to start with that position rather than thinking that these people have all these perfect solutions and then the minute that one of them isn't perfect, we think they're rubbish, throw them out, let's bring in the other side who promises all these perfect solutions. I wonder if that... I, I, I feel kind of like where um, the general mindset is on, on politicians on terms of is that they're all terrible, that the government's a disaster, and uh, they'll all let you down. And that's that's used as an excuse for, I mean, that's certainly the mindset of the, the Labour Party. You know, they, there is no perfect solution. We can just, uh, we'll just try to be all things to all people. And you've got the Liberals, their voters' opinion is basically, if it's something that makes the lefties unhappy, then I like it. <laughs> just punching at the people I don't like, feels like is the sentiment of it. And the Greens get tarred with the, oh, they let the perfect be the enemy of the good and you had Labor coming out and doing that. Look, look, at they killed the ETS and don't pay any attention to the fact that we wouldn't talk to them, which if anything is, they're the ones who were, like the idea that the Greens wouldn't negotiate. Right, wouldn't talk to them. Like, that's who didn't negotiate. But the idea that they let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I don't think they do. If that was who they were, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be supporting them at all because I think that that's a, like what you need to do is take an approach of, um, you know, that, that, that if, this is a step in the right direction. This is a, but but not so, um, such a pathetic step in the right direction that it in fact uh, prevents future steps in the right direction. It's got to be something that is actually, you know, if more people were doing it, if if, if people did what I'm doing, then the world would improve. Uh, as opposed to if people everybody did what I'm doing, the world would get worse. Um, and I don't know that pe- I don't know that anybody's expect. I don't know there's anybody out there who's expecting that politicians. Uh, maybe the Trump cults think that their politician is literally the second coming of Jesus or something. At this point, I don't. They they really seem to have gone off the deep end. But I other than I that, absolutely one hundred percent disagree with you. Oh good. Yeah. That's what this podcast needs. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. No no. Play. I be- I believe that what you say is absolutely right. Probably for you and probably for people who listen to this podcast and probably to me and the media chattering class and all that sort of stuff, the people on Twitter and whatever. But I honestly believe the more and more that I just try to look at the world and what people's engagement in politics is and what people's frustrations with politics is, I believe that it comes down to this idea. And we've been trained it by advertising. It's capitalism. You know, if if you talk about advertising being the poetry of capitalism, Mm. right? And we have been raised on the poetry of capitalism. This aspirational consumerist thing that's destroying the planet. You know, it's it's capitalism like the, uh, you know, capitalism is handy to transition a third world economy into a first world economy. It, in fact, there's been nothing more successful throughout history of making that jump than capitalism. But capitalism left, you know, to its own devices as we've pretty much left it, you know, has this capacity for it be 30, you know, rich people who have half the money, you know, three it, years ago. Isn't it like and eight? And now it's eight. Yeah, God. Do you know what I mean? And it's not getting, it's not like next year it's going to be back to 30. No. It'll be four and two and then it'll be Jeff Bezos. You know what I mean? Like, that's... That, that said, if Jeff, I feel if you want us to pander the podcast to you and you're willing to, like, make a decent Patreon subscription, which we could really do with right now, like... 
Well, what what I'm saying is... You can put it on Audible. <laughs> is is Audible owned by Amazon? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Right. We, we can, look, we've got no ads there. <laughs> if we suddenly start plugging Audible, no, uh, Amazon... People are listening to this in a year. There might not be much that isn't owned by Amazon. But no, so my point being that I, I think that what, what we have been promised by advertising is this idea of don't be happy with what you have, but don't worry, we have a perfect solution to what you have. And I think so often that we now, politics has become about the exact same thing. Whereas, Don't you think people just, their, their approach to politicians isn't so much the politician's going to give me what I want, it's that I hate them all and they're the least bad one? No. People actually, in all. the general public, like, like there's a politician they like? Australians are like, ah, oh, we bloody hate politicians. We bloody, like, you know, this is one of these great Australian myths. Along with the idea... <laughs> We're the only people in the world who have mates. Do you know anybody mates. else in the world? They just are like... Only What's a friend? Are... I do not know yeah. that. What's this concept? Come and visit Australia. We're laid back. Go to the beach. I mean, you can't take a drink to the beach. You can have a drink or go to the beach. And if it's in Sydney and it's 11 o'clock at night, you can't do either. I'm We're really anti-authoritarian. Don't make us call the cops. Swim between the flags. And uh, while you're down at the beach, uh, just one person per child. That's our new rule. And of course, you can't smoke on the beach. And don't certainly don't have any fun, you know, after night time and... Oh, oh, do you want to ride a bike around the city? We're the only city in the world who can't make that work. You know why? Because you have to compulsory wear a helmet. Can't make your own choices. Everything's fine. Like, it's fine what we're doing to the refugees because they broke an arbitrary rule that we made up. Right. We just, into, yeah, right. Like, Australians love cops and we love rules and we love politicians. And, and pretending that we don't. And we love pretending that we don't. We're obsessed with them. We're not all patriotic and shit like those Americans. We're not like the flag-waving types until no. we're like, we them as capes in Australia Day. And... I mean, it's amazing our obsession with politicians in this country. We're most of them absolutely hopeless. We, we watch politics like it's a soap opera these days, you know? Like Barnaby Joyce. Oh, what an entertaining character oh. in this political... You know, like, but I mean, wasn't there a time when... At least you wouldn't know about Barnaby Joyce. Because what's worse now is we know all these terrible things about people and then they just stick around. Yeah. Like, at least in the old days, you'd be like, oh, well, that George Christensen thing. Yeah, do you remember why he got sacked? Because of all that. Yeah. And, and then you'd be... But, I don't know, he just still is in the... In the Does it feel like that problem, that the... Uh, and it, it feels like this is predominantly a conservative problem. It feels like that the, the one thing that does separate the conservatives from the, the, uh, the liberals and the Labour Party at this point is Labour Party will, if their politicians do something shonky and get caught, they're out. They will get torn into by the, by the media and they will, they will be gone. Whereas the conservatives seem to be able to ride it out. They seem to be able to just go, come get me. It doesn't really matter. And, and it moves on. And it feels like the only thing that's different that, that gives them that power is the media concentration in this country and the way that it, and then the way that they've got the Murdoch press that's very much going to back them in, kill it, doesn't really matter, we'll move on, the story doesn't matter, whereas, um, and the ABC will just sit there in the middle, you know, hoping that they don't accidentally piss off the Liberals so that they, they take more of their funding, like a beaten cur. Um, yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Like, it's in the interests of, you can't play fair with an opponent that has no interest in playing fair. Mm. Like, it, you're always going to lose the battle where it's like the ABC and the conservative press are like, okay, we'll compromise in the middle. And then the ABC moves to the middle. Yeah. And the conservative press like walks up and down on the spot and goes, we've moved also. <laughs> and then you have to move to the middle on this next one. And he's like, hang on, I feel like I'm getting a lot closer to you than I am. Feels like it's always going in one direction. In well, you've heard me talk about the, the ratchet, the thing of um, whenever we've got cash, oh, tax cuts for the rich. 
Oh no! Now we don't have any cash because we gave it all away, and now and the uh, commodity prices are down in the mid-year economic forecast, apparently. Uh, so the, this surplus is not going to not going to be happening. But uh, oh well, I guess we just have to kick the poor a bit harder. Oh, we kicked them so hard that we've now got some extra cash. Give it back to the rich in tax cuts, etc. And it feels like you know there's no reason other than cowardice in the fact that the people who don't want us to do this are the rich and have more power and money. But it feels like there's no the, the progressive side should be pushing it the other way. And I I don't know if I've, I've sort of had a I've mentioned on the podcast before. I think that there's a the way that that could be done is by having the progressive parties being ready to go. So whenever there's cash and whenever the government announce, whenever the conservatives announce tax cuts, that's when you say no. Here is dental on Medicare. Here are these good things that you want. This is what we could do, and you can't come back and say we can't afford it because it's less than you're about to give away in tax cuts. And vice versa, when they're about to kick the poor, that's when you say you know what? That's when we go. Like, look, we're spending six billion dollars a year on on cash payments of franking credits not just franking credits but the cash bit for people who don't pay any tax we don't need to do that and where that didn't work in an election where it just seems like oh my god they're coming for somebody's pocket they'll come for mine next at that point it's like oh no that's a choice we can do that instead of starving the, the poor well like, I, this is so you know you always talk about what sort of world you would like to see right any or just everybody uh, i mean i think people talk about what world they would like personally, and then a what world perhaps would be good for the world. And, you know, I, I've never been a, a... In fact, I don't think I've voted for one of the major um, political parties since Keating, and Keating was the only time I ever voted Labour in my life. I've never voted Liberal, but... Um, and then you, then you saw Labour in power and his little... <laughs> did you ever see that? But this is... Okay, so... Here's, I, I mean the TV thing. You see the ABC thing of like... really good point is what I mean. Though. Like... When the left like idolise Keating as some sort of like perfect person, then you're not paying any attention to what we're not. There are plenty of the problems that we have today that you can yeah go to. Keating was right wing. He wanted to do. He wanted a consumption tax. He wanted. He did a whole lot of like. Yeah. How anybody's portraying him as a as a progressive? It's just like compared with Howard, who came after him, maybe. Right. But and so this all this is part of this idea that we look for these perfect solutions, or we imagine there was a time where you know everybody was perfect. It's complete bullshit, and I think this is why the leadership spills keep happening. Is because the opinion polls we're so sick as like as as like the audience for this soap opera. We're like, oh, we're sick of this guy. This guy's not being as entertaining yeah. as we want, and the party's like panic, and they're like, oh, we're going to get a new star in for the show. Anyway, the point being that you know you'll have some people, you know, your Tom Ballards to you know whatever who have such a great understanding of where they're their view of the world fits and what that might subscribe to um, when it comes to a, you know, a previous philosophy or what thinkers have inspired that way of thinking. I've just never been one of those people. That's not what my desire or interest around, you know, politics and news is. Like I have a scepticism towards most of it would be my, you know, original position. I think I don't have that idea. You know, when people say, oh, politicians have got into it, for, they all get into it for good reasons. Bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. And Hell I don't no. believe that lie for one second. Oh, they all started good. They got corrupted by the system. Who oh, thinks that? People say that all the time. I think I think you could say it about some Labour politicians. Some some might go in there thinking, like your Jed Keeneys and people who are like, I could get into Labour from the inside and change it. Yeah. Like, good luck with that. Then you're an idiot. <laughs> and that's never going to happen. No, I mean, like, I admire somebody thinking that. And... I can see how somebody who has, you know, great ideas can be corrupted by the system, like a Peter Garrett or whoever, mm. you know, who, who was genuinely passionate about, you know, taking some of his celebrity lifestyle and using it to help the world and then got corrupted by, you know, the uh, limitations of the system that we have. I, I understand all that. 
I, I don't... So I, I'm not going to tell you about policies or this party or that party. I'm just not interested in that sort of thinking. But here's what I am interested in. We're not going to overthrow capitalism, but clearly capitalism is broken. So we have to do something about it. And the most appealing... Can't really just stopped out, really. <laughs> yeah, but the most appealing thing, the best idea I keep coming back to that I hear that I think has worked is tying the bottom to the top. I think tying the bottom to the top is the best way. You know, whether it be in a company where you say the CEO can't earn, you know, more than 30 times what the poorest worker in the company earns, right? So then you suddenly have, if Alan Joyce wants to make $24 million a year or whatever he makes, then the bottom rung person who's being paid by Qantas also has to make at least a commensurate amount of money. If he wants to increase his earning capacity, then the person on the bottom has to increase their earning capacity. And as a society, I don't think that we're ever going to get rid of billionaires. Then we're not going to be able to wind it back to the point where people are not going to make excessive amounts of money. But we've got to tie it to the bottom rung in our society. So, But that's effectively doing the same thing. Like the only thing, the billion is, it's, a dollar isn't doesn't have an innate value. It's like a, like you know, you have a billion. You have billionaires in Zimbabwe, but they might. No. With that, with, but that's not. I, un- I understand what you're saying. But it's, it's, it's the ga- it's, that's no, all that that means. It's the gap. We can we could come up with a series of things that we believe are basic human rights: access to education and health, and you know, um, you know, food to eat, and uh, well, because the alternative is right. And if you don't have those things, you have you can list, you can see all the problems that arise from not right. having those things. So you can make as much money as you fucking want. Once we're sure that all those people have what they need. Which is what progressive tax system is supposed to do. Yeah. Yes. So that's it. That's my only position. My, my, my entire political philosophy could be summed up by, we're not going to be able to get rid of capitalism, but we have to tie it to some system where the top are tied to the bottom. Reduce inequality. As in make that, make that multiple between right. the person at the top and the bottom substantially smaller. Yeah. Which is basically, I mean, what, what would we call that? that? I would call that, that's being lefty. That's the fundamental sort of idea of being a lefty, isn't it? Yeah. That's, but that's it. That's my entire guiding philosophy. But that means that you have an, it gives you an approach to yeah. any particular issue that comes up. So yeah. no matter what we're discussing, like there's one angle that gets in that direction and one that doesn't, the one that takes us away from that. What we don't have discussions about in politics enough, I don't think anyway, is just putting them basically like that. Like just having... Uh, the Liberals and the Labor and the Greens are all going to get together today and we're going to have a discussion around what do we believe the basic tenets of being a human being in Australia are. And then we have an assessment of who is or isn't, um, you know, having those basic levels of living. And then we put all our money and attention into fixing those until they're all fixed and then you can go off and you can make your, you can dig shit out of the ground and make billions it of isn't, dollars if you like. Isn't a start problem that you've got there is that the... Okay, if you ask the question of so here, um, this policy you got this policy is going to reduce inequality. This is going to make the lives of the poor better. It's going to improve public health or public education. We're going to put the poor on dental care. It's going to be funded by the rich paying a bit more tax. Okay, the liberal version, the conservative version, will be simply they deserve. We shouldn't be reducing the gap. The gap shows merit. Shows it's it, people who are rich are rich because they deserve it. Like their whole. Self-image depends on the people at the bottom being it being partly their fault. Yeah, but that's fine. You can be as rich as you want. Once we, once we, if you say to them the poor, sure, or the unemployed, then they become a category they can demonise. 
what I want to do is have a discussion where we all just sit around and we go, as human beings, what do you think that every single human being is entitled to in their life? But they would say nothing. They would say what they can do off their own bat, like what they can pull up, like what they can pull up their own. I'd like in a debate when we just said, no, just say, do you believe that a human being should have the right to an education? Do you think they would say no? Uh, no, they would probably say. Uh, yes, or no? yes, but do you it, believe that human beings have the right to education? Yes, yes but they would do not. Do you believe that human beings have the right to accommodation? Uh, not from anyone else. They should do it. Sorry, I'm being the conservative yeah, asshole. No. From them, they should. They need to find it themselves. They don't. They don't. They're not entitled to it from anyone else. I don't have to provide it for them. They should provide it themselves. Good. Oh, I'm glad that we've got that on the record. Uh, do you believe that <laughs> this recording is not? <laughs> let me be very clear. <laughs> this is, I, I have this recording safe. This is not actually me. This is anyway. Yeah, okay. I'm being uh, I'm being the asshole. Do you believe? Am I the asshole? That human beings should have the right to healthcare. They should have. If the... I get sick, should I have the right to be able to see a doctor without having to pay for it? No. Okay, great. You can put them in simple terms like that, rather than just talking about a because well, because you should have to work for it. Yeah. Great. I'm happy for them to make that argument. The problem is that they hide all those arguments by saying $7 Medicare levy or rising the blah, 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 or work for the doll. Let's have a conversation about what this is really about. Which but is, they won't do ever do believe, that. Yeah, they they uh, don't need to. Do, and they don't need to because what they do instead is they have the Murdoch press demonise the poor. They, they have constant stories about doll bludgers, people sponging off the system, people... Uh, we, we want to de- you don't want to have sympathy for refugees. Like, if you just had a thing of, should we be kind to people who are fleeing war-torn countries and seek our yeah, help? People would be like, yeah, of course. But if you're like, that person is a, a, a rapist murderer and also they've just had... They want to come here and exploit your mm. your your generosity by having a penis operation dealt with under Medivac or something. Problem Bullshit! That we're having a conversation about all those things instead of the basic thing. Because if you go up to anyone and you say, do you think the refugees should come here? They start making those arguments, right? Mm. But if you went up to that same person and asked them, you know, about basic human rights, you know, like that any human should have, you put them in that situation and you get them to agree to what humans should have first. And then you process that next thought around how we're treating refugees. It's a different argument. We get, we skip, we, we skip to step two and we don't have a basic agreement on, it's the same with the climate. In the old days, it would have been, and it is like, you know, in other countries to a certain degree, mm. um, you know, both sides are like, we agree that climate change is real and it's happening. Now we have a battle of ideas over how we address this yeah. issue, right? But what we are doing t- too much is we get into the battle of ideas, whether it's right or wrong, rather than agreeing on something first. Let's agree that well, you no, you care the, the right to this, this, and this. But the left is trying then, to do that, and it's just that the right is constantly throwing mud at it. Like, no, it's nonsense. Last, it's not when happening. When was the last time that you heard a Labor leader just have a very basic conversation about what they thought that human beings, all human beings, deserved? Because then everything else after that should easily just... Your climate policy, your refugee policy, your work policy, all these things should naturally lead out of how much money we give to Medicare and healthcare and how we allocate those funds and how much we tax the rich to make sure that we have... Because what we're trying to do is cover our basis first Mm. and we allocate every single thing else thing in the system based on that. But we don't have the conversation. I know we have it, but we don't actually have it. We talk around it. We talk about all these schemes. We talk about all these ideas, but we don't actually just sit across from each other and say, ask your family at dinner tonight what you think the basic things that human beings deserve. What every human being on this planet sort of deserves just by being on this planet. I would love 
That's and that's one of the things. So before the this podcast ends, I want to mention two things, cover two things, and I'm going to flag them here so that you can hold me to account that I don't drop them. <laughs> one of them is I do think that those conversations are vital. And so in terms of the question of how do we get them happening, because obviously the corporate media are not going to do it. They don't want us to have those conversations. They've got their own. They're, they're doing much better in selling their version. Um, and my idea in terms of how that can be dealt with, for example, by the Greens, is because you're never going to win the media attention. I think the Greens need to be spending the time between elections Bloody door knocking, get your people out there talking to people door to door. So I'll come back to that. And and, um, and the other thing is, in terms of people like the Labour Party and having that conversation from the fact that they do have a soapbox that the Greens don't have because the media can't just completely ignore them because they are technically, the other in their eyes, in the two-party system they like to portray, they kind of have to cover something of what Labour's saying. So it is infuriating to me that Labour doesn't use its opportunity to do that as a soapbox to actually argue things and instead what happens is they so the, the way they're reacting to the um the uk election and and they're like oh well, see we can't we can't push for any kind of progressive policies because it it, it lost and we, we we had a couple of progressive policies in may and they lost and it's and we can't um you know pub, the public don't like the refugees so we can't defend them public don't like a uh, higher energy price so we can't argue with them we can't do anything that might antagonize people and the problem is that they've forgotten the point of politics is to persuade people and they don't it, it infuriates me that when they lose to the right they don't learn the lesson that the, of what the right does the right when they lose an election to the left they don't go oh shit maybe the left has some good ideas we better adopt some of their policies no they shout louder they double down they make their point they don't give in and that and that the fact that they stick to it and they clearly believe in their message and they have the courage of their convictions to just keep pushing it, no matter the fact that it's you know, nauseating right wing shit that has giant logical holes to it. But they just push it, push it, push it, and that pushes people's minds in that direction. And the only way that the left can do uh, can come back is being uh, is having those voices that we do have confident to push back and persuade people in the other direction. And that's what shits me about the Labor Party taking this idea of. Ah, it's just too hard. One of the problems is that you can't be legitimate in your message if you don't actually know, if you don't 100% believe in it, if you've adopted it for the purposes of winning. Like, if you believe in what you say, like, if if I'm running for Prime Minister Mm. and my policy is that I'm going to start a national conversation, this is the policies of my party. I'm going to start a national conversation around what we agree is the minimum standard it is to be an Australian. We're back. Oh, we had a break and we're back. Well, I was about to explain if I were going to run for politics in Australia, which I am never going to do. But here's what I would say. Is if my position was, let's decide what basic human rights are and then build the rest of our policy based on that. That would be my policy, right? And so then... Take not be, to go in with an idea that you're advocating, but just to be like, tell us. I'm not going to get bogged down in debates over Medicare levies and I'm not going to get debates bogged down in debates over levels of you know, capital gains tax or any of these things yet. We're going to have a big conversation about what we believe the minimum basic rights of being an Australian in this case are, you know, a human being in general, but an Australian in this case. And then we're going to base the rest of our policies on that. So I will sit here now all day and every journalist in the country can come in and you can ask me whatever questions you want because I believe in this and we will run into some stumbling blocks and we'll have to negotiate and there'll be a series of compromises and ideas, but we'll know that the basic principle that we are trying 
to deal with is making sure that all human beings have this basic level that we've all agreed to. And so you're saying that that's else. a isn't that a human rights act? And that's essentially basically a bill of rights. You're saying that the, that we should agree on what what should be in a bill of rights, and then once that's in place, then we then those rights are, are set. And yeah, we just have but to I'm vote. not going to have a debate over a bill of rights. I'm going to have a national conversation. I'm going to go on television, and I'm not going to be worried about answering questions or whatever because I believe in this, and I will answer every question that you have. And we will check it out through the idea. You'll go, what, what's your policy on the climate? And I'm, well, we agree that everybody, you know, should have the right to be alive. So we're going to have to deal with the fact that we're soon not going to be. And here are, you know, what we're going to need to do to make sure that, you know, we address our climate issues. And okay, now we're going to need this much funding. Where are we going to find that funding from? Who are the people who are making these super profits? I mean, it's what they tried to do with the mining tax, right? It's like the basic principle of what they tried to do with the mining tax was a good idea, which was... Let's take these companies that are making super profits out of something that we all own and the original owners of the country actually own, but we as a country now own. These are natural resources that are being you know, dug up out of the ground and you are making these super profits, right? We're going to take some of these super profits and we're going to use them to transition out of these you know, areas and into new, clean, renewable areas. That's a good policy. That's a good idea. They just completely sold it wrong, in my opinion. They made it about, you know, super profit tax instead of making it a transition tax, explaining to the Australian people that we needed to, we were, hey, it's been great for us. We've made all this money exporting coal to the world and doing these things, and it's given us the way of life we have. But we're also listening to scientists, and scientists are telling us that, you know, what we've been doing is also polluting the planet, and we need to transition out of this industry. So we're going to take some of the super profits these companies are making right now and we'll put them into a fund, and this is where I would have changed it, to retrain the engineers who are working in the coal mines so that on you know January 1st, 2020, we transition from that coal power plant and they walk across the road and they start working in the solar power plant or the wind power plant or whatever it is because we have had a plan and we are going to be the weight of renewable energy because we live in a country where we have nothing but fucking sun and heat and wind and all these sort of you know places where you can put these things and we had a plan for the future and it was all through the principle that not only do you have to like you know provide somewhere to live but we were thinking about those workers and the people who worked at those coal mines and those sort of things and making sure that you know in this new economy they suddenly weren't out on the street without a job they were people who had the right to work and go into another industry but I do think I think that most of the people who are advocating for action on climate change are acknowledging that there has to be a transition for the workers as well. I don't think the Greens are being like, "To hell with you! You can all live on Newstart." Yeah, but they haven't put a serious plan. But they have. They, they, they don't. You don't hear it. That's the problem. Well, so that, that's their problem. Is that they okay. can't get. So if I were, so this is what I think the Greens need to be doing. I think they need to be coming. I don't think they need to be. What the, what they do at elections? What political parties do at elections? They door knock. And the Greens are never going to get a fair shot out of the media. They won't. They, they, they don't have the money. They are directly antithetical. Antithetical? Antithetical. They're yeah. directly opposed to the interests of the people who own the media. Um, and the ABC are too terrified to uh, have a greedy on in case the IPA, you know, demands they be privatised or something again. Not that the IPA have ever stopped demanding they be privatised or ever will. Like, they object to the idea of the ABC in the first place. But yes, they just feel a little hastened if they have greens on. Anyway. Well, the problem with the IPA is, like, it's a, these, these things become a cyclical problem because the funding gets cut to the ABC. Uh, we always talk, people always talk about the ABC being, you know, uh, biased towards, you know, the left or whatever. Which is nonsense. If anything's biased towards the right, like they can't, they're scared of, they, they bend over backwards to be 
to... Is, is there an argument to be made that the ABC is populated by people who lean to the left more than the right? Absolutely. Workers, yes. The, the people who work for it, yes. But the... Yeah, because also people who believe in public broadcasting tend to be from that spectrum and people who believe in making lots of money don't end up working at the ABC for very long. No. The amount of times over your life you have to turn down major commercial opportunities to because you believe in public broadcasting, it just doesn't end up attracting a lot of, you know, hardcore capitalists because it's just a bad business model to get paid fifty dollars to go on John Fain's show versus paying five hundred dollars to go on the hot breakfast yeah. or whatever, you know. It doesn't make sense to somebody who's more interested in money than what it is that they're doing to go and work at the ABC. Yeah, so all the the right wingers who are like, Oh, why don't we get on the ABC? Because you don't want to work for the money. Right. You, so want, you want to be paid more. Go on the ABC. People are already being paid to be mouthpieces of those ideas. People like the IPA. Yeah. Because the IPA aren't getting paid by the ABC or they're getting paid a minimum amount of money as an appearance fee for these shows. But they're getting paid by the IPA to be public spokespeople for these ideas. So they're already being paid. That's why you end up with people from the IPA and similar organisations on those slots on the ABC. Because... Genuine capitalists won't do it because they're busy making money somewhere. And so people who are, you know, paid to be the mouthpieces of capitalism instead do it as just part of their daily job. So let's let's switch around. So say I'm 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 from the Greens and the Greens have listened to what I've been saying on this podcast and instead of just doing door knocking at election time because what they do at the moment, they send people out, they they door knock, they campaign. They really don't have enough people uh, because it's they just bring them in for the election. They just raise up the, that attention, and they only send them really in the you know Melbourne or if there's a seat nearby that they can potentially win. So they just sort of local. They, they have them on the ground in those seats, and then out where we are in you know not that far out in Melbourne, but we don't see anyone from the Greens or even the Labor Party really. Um, but they do that, and then they then they disappear because they don't have enough uh, funding to pay for a person in the office to administer volunteers because you would need to if you're a political party you would need to have some kind of quality control you would need to train people you know you can't you don't want to have people who go out there and they say they're from the greens and they they reinforce every stereotype and they do a poor job and they alienate people like you've got to have people who know who are going to do a good job so you have to have some quality control um so yes they would need to have some training they need to have although it feels to me like it would uh roll over like once you've trained people up they can train the next because a lot of greens members are happy to volunteer their time to do it and they'd be happy to go out there between elections because basically they're there for those three months or whatever for the election campaign and then it all shuts down and then two and a half years and they're doing nothing so the greens message isn't getting out there's no progress there's no one out there arguing the things that we're talking about as to why these approaches on these issues are kind of, you know, the basic humanity of the people that are affected to persuade people. I mean, it's a good example of uh, what I was saying is that idea that let's take them out of being political conversations and let the, let's have them being conversations about values, about values, you know, so in between the election, continue that conversation for three years, but don't make it about the Greens have a policy on this. Don't make it about the blah, blah, go and have conversations with people around their values, their dreams, their desires, and make that connection. For me... I feel like if you knock on somebody's door, though, they are going to... Like, if you're coming yeah. from... if The only people who've got a motive to do this are lefties. So yeah. it's, it's going to be a political thing. People I'm, are going to feel that you're... Yeah. I'm from the Greens, okay. for example. Well, do, maybe right? switch around. If I, yeah, say, okay, say, right. I'm, say you're the person who's right. a, a liberal voter, and I'm from the Greens, and okay. I'm knocking on the door, and I really should have actually... Pre- I would have actually prepared this in a way that actually, you know, as part of my training that would happen beforehand. But yeah, okay, so we're from like, the Greens. Yes, uh, hello, yes. What hello. would you like? Oh, from the Greens, and we want to represent 
you're in Parliament. We want to be people who are able to, to put your concerns and talk about some values about where the country is going. Why well, vote Liberal? So I'm not interested. Well, can you willing to have a conversation about it? Uh, about politics with a greenie, you know, Yeah. Okay. <laughs> are there any things that you're concerned about that are happening in politics at the moment? Okay. Are... So, well, you, 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 when you talk about politics, they're very... You're... In the world, in the country, what are the, in terms of where the country is going, are there any things that are uh, bothering you, things okay. that you're happy about, things that you're bothered about? Can I have a go at it now? Can we flip it around? Can I... Uh, I, I feel like I feel like you may have a better idea of this. Well, thing. just because I I'm, I'm, I'm just, no I'm just asking you with this approach. Well, okay. I, I don't know. I'm literally we're having a off the top of our heads conversation around these ideas. And I, whereas if I would expect that the Greens would actually if they would when they were doing this right. they would have training room where people would be bouncing back forth right. ideas and be like what about if we said this oh good idea that's a good way of approaching that issue this is how we do that so they would actually yeah. be trained and they would be fired up when they're going out there. my like, attitude okay. would be in, instead of me telling you what mr I'm... anderson ele- oh god there's a lefty at our door <laughs> okay uh hello hello oh that voice is very familiar is it from some kind of a podcast uh yeah hi i'm, I'm will anderson i'm uh i'm uh running for the greens in your local area um uh, what I've noticed is that um, the Greens haven't had very widespread support in this community so far. Um, are you a Greens voter yourself? Uh, no, no, I, I'm, uh, I'm concerned about, uh, about the economy. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You're exactly the sort of person that I wanted to talk to today because I just wanted to have a conversation about you, uh, with you about what your concerns are, what your dreams are and uh, why you don't think that the Greens are, you know, uh, handling those desires or those concerns. Would you have time to have a cup of tea and you can, you know, I'm happy for you to have a go at me. I'm happy for you to yeah. you know, tell us what you don't like about the Greenies. Would you, could we, could we have a chat? I think, okay, that's a better way of doing it. Right. Yes, that, but that's what, I, yeah, they, exactly. In between election bit, go and ask mm. them what they want. Yeah. Go and ask them what they believe in. Go and ask them why they're not voting for you. And then take that information back and you might actually have a way of communicating with somebody where if you go in with politics and policies and this is what I want from you, that somebody's already on the defensive. But that discussion, the next step of it is it goes to politics. Because the next thing I say to you is, um, I, oh yeah, they just want to tax me to the hilt, or they want to in, uh, have open borders and flood the country with with every single refugee in the world that they all apparently want to come to Australia. Um, Would you mind if um, I took you know three of your biggest concerns and I took the time to go away, actually have a look at what our policies are, where they might not be addressing your needs, but where maybe. Uh, there's some more information that would give you a different perspective, and then come back to you with just maybe the answers to those three questions. Yeah, I think it's a good. And that's one of the things I was, I was thinking that they needed to have, right, because I think one of the things the Greens are worried about is that people will come back to them with, um, uh, they'll come back to the random volunteer that they don't necessarily know who they are, and that volunteer will say something that's, you know, off that's not their current policy or that was a policy, and that they're like, oh well, but we've got only so much. Yeah, you know, we've got the, the, the it's it's enough of a job to keep the uh, MPs informed with what the current issue is and what the Greens policy is on it, and it feels to me like. Yeah, you could use that same person to be communicating that to the volunteers. But yes, the idea that they can on something that's a bit off the, that's not necessarily the straightforward of, yeah, no, we think that refugees are human beings. And in the same way as if you were fleeing persecution or I was fleeing persecution, we would expect a country to treat us with basic humanity. And it's not a crime to seek refuge. Um, and there are vast, you know, I'm sure that you don't like spending tax dollars to, pers- you know, to have it thrown away, the billions of dollars we spend and that, that every, was the other thing that came every out. Every survey, like Australia says and all those sort of surveys, all show 
that we have these very firm opinions about asylum seekers, about refugees, but that if you measure what our top things that we're worried about or concerned about, that refugees and asylum seekers never make that sort of top five list. You know, we're much more concerned with health and education and all those sort of things. Is that, so, was that the case, though, before we started brutally persecuting them? Like, if we are people only pushing it down the list because they're, they're convinced now, you know, we've dealt with it? No. They've, one, they've stopped, damn it. It's one of those Ignoring the ones that are coming, they've stopped. No, it works because when people talk about it, they have these passionate opinions about it. But if you actually just ask people, what are the three most important things to you, unless you are working in an industry where, because the truth of it is that there are companies that exploit uh, workers from other countries because they can pay them less money and they do, yeah, that idea that a refugee could take someone's job, there is examples where that would happen. Unless you're that person, right? Well, there's I mean, very much a response to that, which is, you, you know where people could undercut you? When they're doing that labor cheaply overseas. You know where they can't do it? In a country that has proper labor protections. But like, they, the yeah. only reason why they get exploited is because we've made it easy for people to exploit them. There's yeah. a solution to that, which is to make it hard for employers so that a refugee who's being exploited can talk to, an, uh, there's an authority that they can talk to, then people would have to stop doing it. Then the refugee's not undercutting you. The only way that they can undercut you is if we stop them coming in. I agree with everything you've said. But what I would say more than that is, let's not even have that conversation. Because if you talk to this Liberal Party voter about what his top three things that he cares about in life are, I bet that refugees doesn't come onto the list. If we bring it up, he'll be very passionate about it in one way or the other, then we'll have to have that argument. But I want to reframe in people's minds the idea that we're addressing the things that are important to them rather than having big angry fights about things that in his day-to-day life, this man that I've just knocked on the door of, his life is never going to be affected negatively by our border policy, and we can get around that. If we convince him on the health and the education and the climate, the three things he actually is passionate about, he'll be fine with the refugee policy because people actually care about it in a theoretical way so they can have this national debate, but in a practical way of how it affects your life. If I fall over here and hurt my leg, it affects my life practically that I can get in an ambulance and get to hospital. But refugee policy in this country, in a theoretical sense and in a human rights sense and all these sort of senses, affects me. But in a practical, everyday sense of my life, it doesn't affect the most people. Except that it must affect them enough. So working if class we people, talk about. which they always will. So we've, we yeah. do kind of have to tackle it. I don't think refugees are an issue that, no, that we want. They're not yeah. our issue that we want to, yeah. want to talk about. It's more an issue that because we know that the right wing media can at any point. It's like if we do anything about it, if we move to change it, like yeah. even the piss weak medivac bill mm. that was such a minor change. Like, Dutton could still stop people coming in. It was, it, was a, it was only a minor thing where Dutton just couldn't pretend that he knew better than doctors. He could still block people coming on security grounds. Um, and even that was portrayed as if it was, like, opening the borders, even though, like, they managed to persuade Jackie Lambie, although, I, given everything else, I suspect that they've got something... They really think that, like, Peter Dutton's terrifying super department. It doesn't make any sense that she's also folding on the union bill and everything. Like, she's suddenly folding on everything. It's weird that... But anyway, um, like they managed to persuade her to vote for repealing it on the grounds that people might, might be drowning. Between the time it came in and now, they can't point to anyone. Like it doesn't, there's no increase in numbers. There's no, even on their own metric of what, what they're worried about, it's been in place. There's no examples of what you're talking about. Like they, you, you can't even, it doesn't even make any sense. Who, who do you think wins, just in a practical sense? Who do you think wins every time we have one of these big shouting matches around 
border policy and until we change the, the as long as the idea that we need to keep the border secure from refugees as long as that idea is there i think the right can always appeal to it because we can't do anything humane without them going you're opening the borders we're going to be invaded you're going to be swamped your job's going to be taken by a refugee like you'll be murdered by them we fall into a trap every time we let them reframe the debate is that being the number one issue in the country? Because every single survey, every bit of data and evidence that we have says that it does not make the top five when people are asked about what they really care about. So when we let the government and the media reframe the debate into asylum seekers being the number one issue, it gives them more and more permission to ramp it up to... If we were able to take it out of... Reframe it so that we actually talk to people about what they care about and put it down the list, guess what? That stopped behaving in such a cool manner because the political capital there wouldn't be there for, to keep exploiting it. You've got it. We've got it. They're happy with the fight. They pick the fights so they can have the fights. It didn't matter to them whether Medivac one way or the other got up or didn't get up. They picked the fight again so that they can have the fight. But simultaneously, got... we can't keep this happening. Like, we do have to change it. Like, it's not no, like we, we can sit down and go, it, it stays in place. Part of how we change it is that we've got to stop letting them prioritize it as the number one issue. How do we how do we stop if, if so anything that we do that actually changes the rules and that stops us persecuting those refugees and we process them here and we treat them with you know they have rights while they're in the country mm. and we just we stop being scared of them. Anything that we do that changes the rules, we know that the right wing media and the right wing politicians will scream you're going to be murdered in your beds. You're going to have your job taken. So how do we inoculate people ahead of time before they do that? Not because we want to have the argument, but because we know that they will bring it back. How do we get people in a mindset where that doesn't work? And don't we need to have put in place a different narrative on the same issue? Basically, they're not a threat to you. Uh, We need to keep making that argument, but we need to keep making it very much how you would make the sixth rank argument in your arsenal of arguments. You have to reprioritize the discussion around what's important to people because if I can convince you on the three things that you think are most important, you'll deal with fifth and sixth on that list of not being perfect to what you're... But if I let you reprioritize... So just to use an example. So say health... Well, you're a parent. What are the... If I just asked you in your life in a practical sense day-to-day what your big priorities are, what are they? In terms of what a government can do? No, in terms of your life. What are the priorities in your life to raise your family and whatever? Let's stop talking about politics. Oh, okay. So just talk about what's important to you. That my children have uh, have secure housing. They have uh, they have opportunities in the future, in the sense that there will be a they'll have choices of what they can do. It won't be shut off to them based on wealth or whatever, and that they will be able to. Uh, live in a planet with which will be reasonably, you know, livable, and it won't be, uh, you know, a, a gradually <laughs> a ball of of chaos and conflict driven by people being forced out of their homes by runaway climate change, and, and you know the permafrost is melted and we're all doomed forever. So I'd like, I'd like, I feel increasingly guilty that I've just brought in twenty in the you know the last twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen, I've brought three children into the world. At this point in our history. I'm a monster, is my No, you're not. I mean, human beings have children. Like, you know, yeah, I get the idea that, like, you know, the amount of people that there are in the world is problematic to our survival on this planet. But it's not the... Well, it's more what we're doing as a, as a species. Not that, not that there's so many of us. More right. like That we are just like, ah, fuck. Like, Australia is busy fighting today. Do you see the thing that... that in the, the, the Australia and Brazil, and I think the US as well, are busy sabotaging um, any action on, on uh, climate change. It's like COP26 or COP... Uh, 
I should know, but I don't. But, you know, the agreement and this whole thing of Australia, we can't do so much. We're such a small country. On the world stage, we do a pretty good job of sabotaging any action on this stuff. Yeah, but this is, so, this is my point. We end up having all these conversations around politics when we need to have some conversations around what's actually important. Because if you sit down with anybody and they give you that same thing, yeah, the sake of the planet, the safety, their safety and their, you know, health or, you know, whatever it is, like, then you can have a conversation around the debate of like what health means and what education means and what safety means and how you combat the climate. But we end up having all these conversations where we get lost in the minutiae of the argument. We're like, we can't see the forest for the trees when it comes to you know, planning what it is. And we let the media and the government reprioritize issues in a disproportionate way to how people actually believe in them. And but we what we can do to stop these that. debates. Well, you've got to reframe the argument. That's hard work, but you've got to reframe it. You've got to talk to people about the things that they find most important. Now, if somebody's... Okay, so uh, let's try to put this in a really basic... Um, okay, so if my three favourite heroes are um, uh, Batman, um, just for the sake of this, Captain America and Hulk, right? Delicious for the sake of that, That's my argument. They're my three. I mean, psychoanalyzing how you'd come to those would have been fascinating because they were genuine choices. Yeah. Like, what, a, what a mix. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Batman's pretty... Uh, we know I, about you and Batman. I, I yeah. like Batman, but I was just choosing the other two for, for the sake of it, right? Well, actually, Hulk's a better example of the other one. So let's say that Batman... <laughs> I'm glad that we, we're narrowing yeah. down which superheroes we're talking about. Batman, okay, yeah. Spider-Man, and uh, Captain America, right? They're yeah. my top three. But then Hulk is asylum seeking policy, Right. Hulk is just smashing and making noise and blah, blah, blah. So we're always concentrating on Hulk. But what I actually really care about is those other three. And if we can uh, start paying attention to those other three that I actually care about, Hulk's only smashing because he's getting so much attention, right? But the, the media will always give him more attention. But they, they will always be like, if we stop talking about him... They will like be blasting gamma rays at him. One side's having an argument is not an argument anymore. It's just a crazy person shouting. Unless it's the entirety of the media, <laughs> and they get to shout it out, yeah. well, and and they get to say the only way to save Batman is Hulk. The only way to save Batman is Spider Man is Hulk. The only way to save Captain America is Hulk. Because isn't that the problem? That the three things that I listed, for example, like for me. Those are reasons why we need yeah. progressive policies. We need a, a we need a public education system so that that everybody is getting a chance to be educated. We have some some class, some stability in the country, and people have you know the country can actually run because there's an educated populace that can be engaged in in whatever they want to. They can have a happy country. Action on climate change. Um, and uh, I've forgotten what the first thing I was saying, but basically all those things that seem to me to be arguments for progressive policy are housing. You could also have, they would turn around, and once we've established that these are the things we all agree on, that those are important, they'll turn around and be like, ah, but they're all, they're all endangered. All those things that you're talking about, we agree with you. We're totally on board with that, but they're endangered by the refugees. The immigrants are going to come in there. They're going to take the housing. They're going to take the education. They're going to take all the resources so you can't look after your kids. They're going to um, flood the country so you don't have enough water. They will find every single thing that we want to talk about until we deal with the fact that that whole line is a is a lie until we tackle it it can invade everything can't it like do you see what i mean like it's it's they can use that to attack everything that we care about how in principle it always feels like the smartest thing to do is that liberals and progressives and i think that's part of the problem is labels you know but i I explained earlier i'm not like i'm not anti-people having their own labels i'm just anti-labels myself because i think if we start with labels 
everybody goes, well, I'm not a progressive or I'm not a right. If you actually yeah, I, just the, I don't think the labels are helpful, are they? Because like, who's a socialist? What's about left what their ideas are? Hmm. Often you'll find that somebody. You, like you label themselves one thing is actually something completely different. Or when you do a policy once, question, you know those those right. like acts, the, the you know the quizzes on the internet of like when you're choosing between these approaches, which do you prefer? And that's when you find. And I have a very different attitude to children's education than say somebody who has kids does. I believe in it as a general principle, but on my list of priorities, if you wrote a list of ten things that are important, that would be further down the bottom to me because I'd agree with it as a general principle but in my day-to-day life whether children have access to education is not something that other than you know an uneducated populace and those yeah when you're in your 60s you want the doctors to be decent for example (laughs) but it's different to somebody who has a whole bunch of kids who are about to go to school right until you talk about how you prioritize but said it always bothered me like I only had kids in my 40s but it still was a thing that bothered me okay I'll give you a better example then Somebody who, um, me having access to free education, uh, free uh, medical care, is important, obviously, but it is not as important to somebody who's just had baby twins, right? Yeah, I don't... It's suddenly important to you and the fact that you have children. We, we but can't we have that sort of basic sense of fairness of, of even if it doesn't both. directly affect us? Well, it's just like, like even if I well, didn't have kids, I'd still be like, yes. I want to make sure that people, like, the idea that people get those $10,000 bills. In that if you have a list of five things or 10 things, different people are going to prioritize different things in different places. There's nothing oh, wrong with that. Yeah. Like, because for someone, kids' education is number two on their list. And for me, it's number eight. doesn't mean that I don't give a shit. It's still on my top 10. But I just don't have that, you know, connection to it and we've got to reframe the in my opinion the asylum seeker debate not away from presenting the arguments or the facts or whatever but we're losing that debate progressives are losing the debate of going if we just have better facts and more science climate change is the best example yeah that better arguments won't fix it we've got to we've got to stop playing this game that if we just come up if aaron sorkin just comes up with that line that's clever enough then all racism and the climate and the economy, it'll all get fixed because it won't be. We can't win by mounting better arguments. So we've got to work out another way to win. And if we truly believe that we that we want to like get rid of this oppressive system that we have for asylum seekers in this country, we can't keep playing the game where it's beneficial for them to have these big public fights and reframe it as the number one issue. We've got to take it back to an issue where they don't have political capital in the idea of being cruel to people. And if we can get it out of there, we can actually genuinely, because then they won't have the fight in them to you know make political capital of them anymore. I know, I'm not saying that's even something that can be achieved. Well, I wonder about that. that it's... This idea that if we just keep coming up with better arguments, we will finally win the day is not winning. We are losing because we think that is the solution. We've got to come up with better solutions. Or is it that we don't push uh, the arguments hard enough that we are all over the place? Like the right, the the, the fact that we don't believe in that. Well, no, more more, (laughs) more target the better. Yeah, that sounds, I know know you're mocking that, but let, so with with refugees, instead of pitching it as, as a, so, as long, if we're consistent with it and be like, no, this is but this yeah. is not who we are as a country. Like if we just have, as long as we maintain, part of the problem is that yeah. we cede too much to them. And we've, yeah. the, the, the Labor Party, for example, has ceded the idea that, that it's saving them from drowning, yeah. brutalizing them to do, that the idea that pushing somebody to stay mm-hmm. overseas when they're fleeing persecution is somehow kind. Like we, we've given too much truck to bullshit arguments like that. And we should have maintained the line and gone like, that's absurd. How is it kind to somebody who's fleeing persecution, who knows that it's dangerous on a boat and who's still doing that because it's, 
less dangerous than staying where they are instead of dying and, and us simply saying boats are a problem the drowning's a problem yeah so we get them here safely we process them and this is the thing that I think would be a, so separate to the overarching things that appeal to lefties the argument for the person who doesn't give a shit and who's just worried that they're coming for their resources it's going to cost them money they're going to come and sit on the dole you know that the idea they're going I'm going to be paying out of my pocket to some undeserving brown person is that like there's this undercurrent but yeah but you've hit okay go and I'll I'll make yeah so the point but what then what isn't hammered hard enough and that of the soapbox that Labour has and if the Greens are on the ground and pushing it if people if they would push these things properly sensibly and loudly the fact that it's hurting you what we're doing to refugees it's hurt not hurt it's sold them for a second if you don't care about them it's hurting you person at the door because your money is going out of your pocket to fund bureaucratic you don't like bureaucracy bureaucratic hell camps on remote islands you're spending billions of dollars on this it is fu- you're being taken for a sucker nobody likes feeling stupid you're being taken for a sucker by these people who are pretending that they're saving you cash while squandering billions of dollars doing nothing more than hurting people and because they know that you wouldn't really like that if you knew about it they won't let you find out about it they try to cover it up as much as possible they don't let journalists on these islands and they try and make you feel that, like they, they, anything they can say that makes this group of people who you think, you know, at least a few thousand people, and they pick out a couple and try and, and the, the worst ones they can portray the worst way. And they try and make you think that somebody who's just a refugee, anybody can be a refugee. If we were invaded, you'd be a refugee. Like, if anybody can be, it doesn't make you a bad person because you've fled danger. It's a human thing. Yeah. So, so the, I, you're being played for a sucker by these people and it's costing you yeah. money. What if we stop doing that? Well, so There's a better way. Almost everything that you've just said then, I think, um, is true and is illustrative of, I think, where the mistake we're making is. But you're hearing a daughter, last, like talking to a person live last, might make them go, oh, yeah, yeah hang so, on. Well, yeah. So the last thing you said is good. The first thing you said is the problem. So the first thing you did was want to win the intellectual argument at the top end of it, and that's where we're not winning that argument. But I was just saying, apart from that, that yes. was my framing of, yeah. that's all the but point. But that's what we're but... doing. That's the shit that we've got to stop. The other bit of what you said is exactly what we've got to do. But this goes into this in-between election door-knocking conversation that we're using as a metaphor, but also in a real thing. I really think they should do it. you go to somebody and you have that same conversation, you have that list of what your main priorities are, you've already talked to them about... Because I bet refugees wasn't number one on their list if you just talk to them about what's important in their life. We just want them treated. It's right. it's number. Just, we just right. want them treated. I, I don't want to be talking about it. It should be yeah. a sort of thing of like, yeah, we treat them humanely, we process them, and we deal with it. Like, it should never. The only reason it's a big issue for me is because yeah. it's such a monstrous thing we're doing. It's like this great crime. That's but what makes this a big issue. It's I'm, not the refugees per se, it's I what we're doing. I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that that argument, which is 100% correct, I just think. No, I get we've lost that argument. Yeah, we've lost that argument. But also, it doesn't, it doesn't help convince people. Better arguments aren't going to win the argument. I'm sorry, this is not the world that we live in anymore where better arguments will win the argument, if it ever was, but it certainly isn't now. If you really want to make change, you've got to think about it from... So I'm having a conversation with you, liberal voter who thinks he cares about refugees, but the first three things... I'm a liberal voter, I don't care about refugees at all. Oh, sorry, I think that they make everything worse. So I will be resentful if you do anything about them. Okay, great. So we have a conversation around the three things you actually do care about first. And then we talk about the idea of like, well, why is it about, you know, refugees? Like you said, engage with them on that level. Firstly, of just saying, what effect in your life yeah, do refugees have? Like, literally just get somebody to answer that question. Well, nothing now that we've stopped them. Yeah, but did, what did they beforehand? 
Well, they were costing me money. They were sit- coming out here and, and okay. co- make, committing crimes. Gangs. I heard I heard from some liberal politicians who pretended to believe it until they forgot about it and then were like, why? Why would I be worried about residents in Melbourne? Oh, yeah, the gangs. That one. Oh, yeah, sorry. Shit. Yeah, no, they're, they're a real problem. Yeah. Well, I think, like, you know, you've raised a couple of really valid points. You said to me earlier that you care about the amount of money our government's spending and you care about, um, you know, crime and, crime and gangs and family safety. And I think they're two important issues. So can we address the first one, which is, these are the amount of money that it costs us to keep these people on this land. It's actually costing you a lot more if that is your priority out of your pocket to have them there, you know, make the argument you made on their territory, you know, around, you know, government spending. And you say the second one, crime, we genuinely do have an issue, you know, with crime. Here are the statistics. Here's how they break down. If there is a pattern that there is some higher level, what our proposal is that we take some of this money that we're spending here and introduce programs so that when people come to the country, you know, they are easier able to assimilate and that's how we're going to deal with that crime problem. And you can have that conversation with them and maybe you have some chance of, you know, turning them around to the point where they at least are neutral on the topic. Let's not say that we have to win the argument. All we have to do is take them out of the argument. Do you raise it? Like if they don't, if they only talk about their three things that are not about refugees, they don't mention it because in their head, that's sorted. Mm. But they are then still primed for next time the conservatives and the media decide to bash refugees and be like the Greens. They want to let them all in. So it feels like the only way. I'll say I've talked to a hundred people this week, and I can guarantee you I spent half an hour with each of those people, and I talked about the top three things that were important in their life. And guess what? Never came up. Australia's refugee. Oh, I'm saying that if it comes up after I've left, so they don't. We don't talk about it at all. We've had a conversation about, oh, you know, and they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, maybe those are, I can see how those those policies are good. But then between now and the election, they hear a whole lot of shit saying, well, they, they, hear, they hear about Greens policies to be humane to refugees. And then they're like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. That's why I don't like them because of the well, borders. But I've have, gone by that. You've got to have, like, policies and slogans going into an election. But we're talking about the period in between when it shouldn't be politics anymore, where it should be going. What I know is that in the, all the conversations I had around people, when it came to refugee policy, the, their main you know, issues were, say, for example, they were costs and crime. Yeah. yeah. Okay? Just to use the example that came up there. So I'm going to limit, every time this comes up, I'm going to limit answering those two questions about why that's not right. Okay. I'm not going to get involved in every aspect of this. That's, um, you know, I'm not going to go through every aspect of why we're doing wrongly in our refugee policy and how we can fix every bit of it. I'm going to concentrate on the two biggest issues they had towards asylum seekers. The things that were their pushback. Yeah, yeah. and every single time this comes up, I will say, what I'm hearing from people is I hate the cost of what it costs, blah, blah, blah. What I can tell you on the record is here is the number for what it costs to, you know, have them in Australia and process them versus what it is costing us at the moment. The other thing that I'm hearing from people is around crime statistics. I can tell you that in this neighbourhood, the crime statistics in this category, this, they're in this area and this and that. And, and if you don't have that, I'll come back with us. Yeah. And I think I feel like maybe the way to deal with the other issue of if refugees don't come up, but you're aware that it's a problem that they might that it'll, it could come back and undermine everything later. You have a number. You have a you know. Now we've met. You've got an actual person you've met. Well, if you've got any point. concerns about it, give me a call. One-off. You've got to build trust with people on. Okay, I trust you on this, this, and this. Mm. Like Batman, Captain America, and Spider-Man. And that does work. People, like, right? once they like you on something... Next it's... time we can have a conversation about Hulk. Yeah. Because it's not... We haven't led with Hulk, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I, I... And I think... Okay, so I'm going to go a step further now in this you know, hypothetical world that we're positing here. Of I'm so confused as to who, which of us is the greenie and which one's the... the no, no, the... no. I'm going to go away from it now because I think the greenies... If I was the greens, 
if I, if I, and I just love telling people, you know, what they should do in ways that I haven't thought through. We're just going, if you are a left, a progressive party, yeah. and it just happens to be that in Australia that seems to be only the Greens. But say uh, you're a progressive So if you're the Greens, I think the Greens have an incredible opportunity, but I think they are based completely in the wrong part of the world. If I were the Greens, I would look at the way that the National Party has abandoned rural Australia. And I understand this is the biggest heel turn slash hero turn of all time because Greens are... Yeah, uh, how do you get that though? Like, you're, you're, So you're from the, you're from from the, the country, country and... I've, and I believe that the Greens could easily... You reckon they can turn the NAP voters? with a policy. But you, you have to go the whole... It has to be the complete and utter... Like, every time you knock on the door, hi, I'm from the Greens, I know you hated us, I know you think, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm here to have a conversation with you about how we will actually better represent you because people of the land have more in common with the Greens. They see the season's changing. They, they can see. see it's it's freaking them now. They know. like, And the Greens, the problem is at the moment there seems to be this whole sort of thing. Like we can't come up with a decent bushfire policy because, you know, the Conservatives blame it on the Greenies. and the, Well, they, they've got some nice lies yeah. that people believe. The Greenies are somehow stopping backburning, even right. though that's their policy and they've... It's just a lie. Or but part the, of it is also that the Greens aren't in that community campaigning for those communities in a way that they think they can win them. I think they can because the National Party have completely betrayed country Australia and there is an opportunity for a, a genuine party that represented country Australia. And I think that there would probably be a further... I think actually the future, and I don't, don't know if it's going to happen, but I think the sustainable future of Australia is bigger regional cities, you know, mm. high-speed internet, high-speed travel. In the old days, when we were going to have a national broadband network, yeah. that would have been nice. And you turn your Newcastles and your Geelongs and your Gippslands and whatever. Your Aubrey-Wodongas, your... Hubs, because yeah. it helps with uh, housing affordability. Yeah. You know, you put... You know, like the idea that you don't have to pay a million dollars for a house, an apartment in Melbourne where you can like spend $500,000 and have the equivalent place, you know, in sale, which is now this, you know, big hub that you can get on a train and go to, you know, Melbourne in an hour and you have high-speed internet, so you don't probably don't even need to ever go to Melbourne. And suddenly there's all these, you know, you're in the middle of Gippsland, which is this incredible area. For the National Party actually... And dairy and all these sort of things. Like the Greens could build these huge rural communities down there that they actually genuinely represented and turn them into... Yes, slightly more alternative if you are the sort of person who is, you know, a progressive person because you have these incredibly large areas of power that if you actually got those seats, you suddenly have this incredible opportunity to change the way the country operates. Do you have a problem that there's sort of a more socially conservative mindset out there and so then you are, then the Greens are in a position, would be in the same position the Labour Party is, of trying to, trying to manage compete or, or do you just go out there and you're, you're socially progressive and you're like yeah this isn't actually hurting you what's really hurting you is the way the Nats have you know screwed the National Broadband Network the thing that would have actually enabled people to do live in these country towns the Nats the, the whole thing of the NBN originally was that the cities were going to be subsidising the country. You were going so something that was you know obviously bigger links in the country, and we had a network that was going to be everyone was going to be um, the the contribution or the, what was provided to everybody was going to be the same. So that means that effectively the city was going to be subsidising the country, rather than the Liberals' version, which is basically if you're in a rich area you get a much better broad, broadband network than if you're in a remote area, and that was the whole policy. And the Nats still got voted in by the country, whilst they sabotaged it, and so the country has second-rate piss-weak internet. Like, when I'm trying to talk to um, Kerry, my ex-wife, down in... She's down in, in sort of uh, down towards Warrnambool sort of way now. And, like, you can't... It just drops out. Like, it's... 
bonkers that this was going to be, they would have actually been a proper broadband network for remote areas. And then that's, you're right. So maybe the, maybe the, the Greens don't need to follow the Labor path of going, oh, well, you know, then now we have to be a bit socially conservative as well to match it. You just go in there and be like, no, no, we we are consistent in, in that. And it feels like that's, and back to the second thing I want to talk about being the Labor thing, that the, having the, the, and it's half Labor because they're trying to be a broad church, but having something you believe in, arguing it consistently rather than like the right does. The right doesn't fold. They just push it. So if you, if you go in there and you persuade people and you're confident on it, it does that persuades people over time. Like I guess you're right. The Greens could go in there, be socially progressive. It has to be a long term plan, and you yeah. can't change it around quickly. But um, I absolutely 100 percent believe you can. And here's what I know about country people: we talk about them being more socially conservative, but the truth of it is that I actually think that communities in the country, like the example I always use in Hayfield, is I would have grown up thinking that was kind of a yeah, definitely homophobic, you know, conservative town. But of course, the nature of smaller communities is that they integrate really quickly. Like, you know, what often becomes problems in the city is that by the nature of economics, but also if you're moving to a new country and these sort of things, people get either pushed into zones where they're surrounded by people from the same background and whatever. You don't need to necessarily meet other people, interact with other people. If you move into a small country town, you know, the two gay guys who go home and open up the cafe in Hayfield which I would have thought was a homophobic town. Well, guess what? Six months later, when that's the main place in town for people to go for their coffees and their community lunches and whatever, everybody's having their birthdays there. So guess who the heart of the entire community are? Like, the community haven't run them out of town. They've embraced them, and now... It's, so maybe so the social conservative is, is not so much a deep-held belief that um, the the other is bad. It's more that humans don't have... Humans find it bad, hard to have empathy until they know somebody from a group. And so right. if you're a smaller community... It'll take longer before you have, uh, you know, people from smaller groups because there are fewer of them out there, and there's. You know, takes longer, but I think they when you find they, them, they, they, I think they adapt them more quickly. That's why there's been those great success stories about towns that have, you know, adopted a refugee policy. You know, taking because the community embraces them because in small towns, you know what they're missing: kids to play in the local footy team, kids to mm. play in the local basketball team. The Sudanese family comes and moves down to Terrelgan the first knock they get on the door is from the local basketball coach or football coach saying if the kids want to come down and you know, try out for the local team. And if your kid's playing football on the local team, you quickly become part of the community and everybody gets to know you. Like, Well, that's how Bill O'Wheeler sort of drew, drew to that, were drawn to that family and they wanted to... Yeah, well, you're right. right. And, you don't, and I don't think you even need to do and the... look at the example of that community and how they've rallied around that family as a great example of, uh, you know, how embraced by the local community. And it doesn't have to be coercive either. Like I think when you talk about refugees, that's because a lot of country towns that are shrinking that want to grow. And when you talk about um, immigration to those regions, it becomes this whole thing of fine, you can have a visa, but you've got to live in the country. You've got to like, and it becomes coercive. But if instead of that, the country towns were decent internet, decent transport, but you, and, and places which were welcoming then it wouldn't, you wouldn't need to be coercing people there. Those would be places people would want to live. Instead of coerce, incentivize. Yeah. Like, do something, yeah, put in a program that means that the refugees themselves are incentivized and you'll be able to go down and we've already got this program in this town where you, you can get a job there if you want. You don't have to, but there's, there'll be a job available. You've just moved to this country. You know, this is the program. This is what it's surrounded by, whatever. We put resources into this town. So we've saved the local existing community. That town didn't die. 
because we put this in, but we've also got the double benefit of having this program now in this community where these refugees who come to this country for a better life have a better life set up that they can go and take advantage of. It feels like you could probably do that pitch to not just needing to pitch to immigrants. The Greens could basically have a policy which is, because Greens are better representing younger people, for example, housing is now broken, which the Greens are trying to fight as well. And one of the things, you know, you need to, you can't have a crash. You need to sort of slow it down so that wages can catch up. So they have policies they would want to see wages rise comparably and so forth. But in the meantime, yeah, you're right. If you have, um, the Greens could have policies that are making, that are concentrating on making country towns regional areas um, more liberal and incentivising people to live there, which would be attractive to everybody who's marginalised in the big cities, like groups that are... Like young people who can't, don't have a hope of housing now. Um, I mean, and you, but it's got to be stuff there that actually lets that grow and it's got to be meaningful. Like, we, I've done the country thing twice. I've done Mildura. Um, did you see the thing with the... And Mildura has, 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 has problems with... Uh, has race, racial problems more to do with, their, with this hostility to Indigenous people rather than immigrants per se, like as we saw with the... Are you conflicted about the McDonald's? Like the, the sort of McDonald's has come in and done the right thing about that, that racist franchise owner attacking that family. And like the McDonald's came and do the progressive thing faster than... And then our government ever would. Or... Did the McDonald's do the progressive thing, or the well, McDonald's just did the? It PR just, thing, right? yeah, but it happened to work out as the. It's conflicting, is what. Right? I mean, yes. Look, not again, out of benevolence, perhaps. This is one of those horrible things that we get obsessed with that are very important for the people who went through it, and it was a horrible thing for the people who went through it. But then we end up having this broader debate around. Yeah, anyway, I look. I agree with you that you can. You don't have to have a right or wrong. You can be conflicted, and that feeling of going, oh, "Was it really up to a multinational company like McDonald's to, yeah, to do this?" But it's good that they did it. Like you know, there was well, probably an age. There was probably an age where McDonald's wouldn't have sacked somebody for saying something really racist. So that proves that we're in a better country now. But at the same time, they are a multinational corporation, and you know they under you know what they pay very low wages in a lot of places and I'm sure there's some ethical meat issues that if I, I mean I don't eat McDonald's so I don't know but I'm you know I know they've made movies about it and stuff yeah no I, I remember <laughs> the McLeibel stuff yeah. in the 90s I remember yeah, the they're not clean skins god and, no um, and so but you're allowed to be conflicted on things you can you can like you know and what did we have last week? We had the rugby... So this idea that, that Rugby Australia was going to protect us from um, the hate speech of somebody like Israel Folau and then when it came to the crunch they folded and threw LGBTI people under the bus and we'd been and there'd been this whole progressive idea that you know it's it's good that he was able to be sacked by rugby australia and it's like no it's never a good idea for employers to have that power over our free speech the problem is that what they're now doing is going to give that special power if it's if you're if your hate if the stuff you do outside of your employment is religious based and it's uh, then then they, you can do what you like otherwise the employer still controls you so we've got the worst of both worlds but yeah it should always have been up to like the consequence of somebody promoting hatred in a community should have been, you know, anti-hate speech laws, the same sort of things that, that stop you vilifying other, you know, stop, stop hate and harm feeding on itself and growing. Like, we, there's a reason we have anti-vilification laws in the first place in relation to other categories. Um, and that should have been presumably the way that you deal with somebody who's equating gay people with criminals. It's a, such a good example of an issue where, like... People are so, so it brings me back to what we were talking about originally, which was this idea of like, you know, black and white, you know, these 
yeah, someone's going to be a perfect example of something or a not perfect example of something. And I think the Falau thing is so much more complicated than a simple yes or no because, like, I, I firstly look at the people who are harmed by that original statement and I think there are some vulnerable groups in our society that were, were yeah. done genuine harm by what he tweeted and what he said. And so because I'm not one of those groups, in fact, I, I mean, to be honest, I was about six of those groups on his list, but, but I, understand, <laughs> yeah. I understand that... But the other groups aren't particularly marginalised. ...or whatever isn't the same as, you know, you know, being vilified for being gay. It doesn't have the same history. It doesn't have the same cultural meaning. There isn't drunk-phobic violence out in the community. Right, exactly. So I am not a person being vilified by what he has done. I don't think it should be right that he has the right to... Like, if we have laws against that sort of vilification, then everybody should be subject to those laws. You, you shouldn't be able to have a religious exemption to, like, a, free, like a yeah. law around speech. You know, you can't just say, you know, I have an imaginary friend who says that I can say these things and everyone's like, oh, that's cool. Which is the whole point of the yeah. new bill. That, like, that, that bill is specifically yeah. giving special privileges to people. If, because isn't yeah. religion is just, religion is just a political belief yeah. with a metaphysical element. Right. So it, all it is is like, yeah, if your religious belief, if your political belief has a metaphysic, you know, has God in it, you can do what you like. Yeah. Otherwise, bad luck. Yeah. So we shouldn't be doing that anymore. You should be able to believe whatever you want to believe, and you should have the right to worship in your own spaces and all these sort of things. But we have general rules of society that you shouldn't be able to have an exemption to because of something that you just think is right. That there is no scientific evidence of any kind that it is. Like it's just not a decent system for you know putting together laws and stuff. Right. So. Falau, so complicated, because Falau, it was a repeat offender. If yeah. it were in his contract or, you know, whatever that he was representing, you know, rugby union in Australia, then it's not just somebody exercising their own personal free speech. Like, for example, if I am tweeting, you know, my own personal opinion on Twitter, it's my own personal opinion, I'm not speaking on behalf of the ABC or I'm not speaking on behalf of, like, another group. But if you but, were Anderson were tweeting stuff like that uh, and it was doing harm to sorry. people, regardless of who you're working for, it's still harmful. Absolutely. It's still something that should be... No, no, but I'm just be... saying they're different, right? Yeah. One is a person, you know, causing that harm and one is a person representing an organisation. I have ABC contracts while I'm working at the ABC about things that I can't tweet. Oh, know, okay. Yeah. You know, that would contravene their social media policy. And so... I am of the understanding that if I did then go and tweet those things, that I would have the right to tweet those things, but they would also have the right to sack me because I have a contract that says that I can't, you know, tweet that sort of thing, right? Okay, so there's a bit of me that goes, okay, well, if you had a contract and that was against the contract, then you have the right as the employer to, you know, execute the contract. But I'm a bit like you in that like, I think that freedom of speech is also very important and you know i think that when we have these sort of yeah the idea that an employer can sack you for expressing your opinion is a, a dangerous area because i don't agree with israel Folau's opinion in this case but what if it were a opinion that i did agree with well we saw michaelia benergy was sacked from the public service right because she was um critical of her boss which was this bonkers thing where the public service has to be apolitical but her boss was not being apolitical. It was just he was pro-government and she was anti-government and therefore she gets sacked and they're allowed to do that. And the High Court said, no, you don't have any right to political free speech. So instead of us turning around and being like, that's outrageous, every person should be able to you know, express themselves online and it's, the employer shouldn't control that. We didn't, we didn't do anything. And in terms of Falau, we certainly didn't turn around and be like, because when he wasn't working for Rugby Australia anymore, we didn't turn around and be like, um, 
hang on, there should be added vilification protections that, that stop him saying, as a person who's not working for anybody, demonising and causing harm to LGBTI people. Like, that's hate speech. If he was saying it about a racial group, there would be laws to protect it. But there, we never finished the marriage equality project. We never, we never, you can still sack people for being gay. You can still, you can still demonise them. Like, we never finished it and stopped, and it infuriates me that we just sort of let that one, we never finished it. But it's true. I mean, because like, if, again, like if we're having this conversation about what we agree, do we agree that gay people are allowed to get married? Then yes, we have. We had a whole big unnecessary vote on it. Um, then you should not be able to sack somebody then from a job or whatever for being gay or being married or like any of these sort of things. And we never like, fixed that. Like they've still got, they can still do that. And, and, and they're like the whole thing of, um, so they say, so they have the right to sack the gardener for being gay at a Catholic school, say. Mm. A Catholic school can be like, and particularly because after marriage equality, the gardener goes and gets married. And then they find out about it. And they're like, cool, we're sacking you now. Which they can do, um, even though it's got, like if they had an argument about it being a religious teacher that was incompatible with their, what they were arguing, I still don't think that's a good enough argument, but at least that would be an argument as to why there's a connection. But like the gardener, doesn't even ha- they don't even have to argue that it had some connection with their actual job other than that we expect our staff to live our values. Well, the only thing it could be is the idea that they, it, it in some way restricts their capacity to do their job. And I find it hard for you to argue to me that being gay or having a husband or whatever stops the gardener from being able to do his job properly. And yet, when it came to these new changes that they've done to their religious discrimination bill, they've specifically put a thing in there saying that um, if you want to have, if you're a company and you're going to have any restrictions on what an employee can say outside work, it has to be connected to their job. So, like, the, the, the goal of them turning around when they're like, it doesn't matter that it's got any connection to your work or not, we should be able to sack you. But in reverse, you can't sack us for stuff unless it's, you know, it's got to be... God, they've actually added that text. It's but because it is so, so difficult, because we are balancing a whole bunch of competing things. And I think the first one should be do no harm. So just don't... Firstly, just don't tweet things like that would be my first... That, that's where it would have been great if it stopped. Well, if allowed in Twitter, and I know, then this is the nonsense when like, because I'm, you know, if people want to be religious, they want to be religious, but when it becomes a problem is this idea that Falau has, where in his mind, it isn't hate speech because he's saving people. His God tells him that people need to be saved and he can't, he can't work out in his head. Like he doesn't get in his head that it doesn't matter what, you know, his God says that he's doing. The practicality of what he's doing is being hateful in his speech. You know, like, it's, it, it can't, you know, like, because saying to somebody that they are not right because you believe in something that isn't real, that has told you, that's not... Uh, well, he wouldn't accept that framing of it. He'd be like, yeah. this is real. But the pro- I, I think the thing that he doesn't grasp and that he needs to grasp is that he has come to a religious conclusion and he has to recognize that other people in the world have come to different religious conclusions that he might not think are right but he has to acknowledge that in the same way as he is committed to this idea other people are committed to competing ideas and if you do not have if the society that you live in doesn't have rules that conflict you know protecting everybody from having other people's things imposed on them then you have what sectarian violence and chaos like there's got to be some means of compete of, of mediating between these completely conflicting views and yes whilst if he was correct then it would make no sense to restrain him at all he has to concede that everybody else thinks they're correct as well and therefore he can't and and that's yeah that's why the idea of removing those barriers and just giving it free for all based on what people just think in their own heads is bonkers and scary yeah look i mean the problem is that 
these things are very complicated. And then what ends up happening is that there's an overcorrection in this legislation, right? And that's what... So we, we end up getting involved from day to day in these, you know, Israel... Like, I, I never want to hear about Israel Folau again, you know? <laughs> I'd, I'd be perfectly happy to do it. What? Like, who cares what Israel Folau thinks? Like, I understand that if you're the person that where the harm was caused to you, absolutely, you have the right to that harm. But I wonder if the rest of us, we get caught up in this idea that, you know, the, the, the conservative media and, and, these, this, and even Scott Morrison and the, the religious right have an agenda behind us having these, you know, massive conversations around these things that they can then leverage into the sort of legislation that they were talking about. Whereas if we had just gone, he's a horrible person, we've acknowledged he is, um, he's been sacked and the rest of us kind of then just ignored him. Is that better or worse? Like, well, they were never going to shut up until he was free to do it. So the fact that he got sacked, like there was either going to be a consequence for him or there wasn't. Mm. If there was a consequence for him, they weren't going to shut up and we have to push back. Because otherwise the LGBTI people are left. Like if we don't stand up for the minority that's being attacked and we just leave, leave them to be picked off. Like it is a thing that I feel like as moral people, we've got an obligation to stand up and be like, yeah, no, no we are, we're, we're on your side and, and we don't accept people just attacking you and harassing and harming you. What about the argument that, and again, I'm not sure what the answer is here because I don't think that you can leave these arguments necessarily unsaid, but that more people see the retweeting of the comments and more people see the, the it's the amplification. You actually fall into their trap when you amplify their ideas, even if you're being critical towards them. The problem with that is then if you, then you just always if you don't engage, you're just letting it fester and it grows in its own way, but in a way that doesn't have any. Like when do you then engage? Like if if you're if the theory is that at any point that you engage, you're, you're amplifying it, then it just goes and grow. It doesn't go away. It just re, it it builds and um, and it says to people who are harmed by it, we don't care. And it leaves them. It doesn't. Isn't it that we need to stand up and be like, no, no. Um, we've got a very clear idea of what's acceptable and what isn't. I think part of the problem with the religious discrimination thing is that that, it, that um, the biggest other party other than the coalition have been completely silent on it. Like they're ducking, weaving. Um, Albanese's met with the religious leaders, but not with the LGBTI community. Um, instead of coming out and being like, no, there's been no basis given for why this is needed. The only examples they give are examples where. Um, if anything, the law should go the other way. It should be protecting people, not not you know amplifying hatred. Um, we're not going to vote for it. But more than that, we're going to actually stand up because the coalition is happy to argue this shit from one side, and there's this silence on the other side. And it just infuriates me that Labor feels that like this is a wedge, and we have to avoid dealing with it rather than standing up and being like, you know, we're being pushed. The only way to put the only way to counter that is to stand up and push back and and with confidence tell people why. We don't need this. You're not going to wedge us because people. We're going to actually persuade people that your idea is a terrible one. In fact, I think well, the big thing that we were talking about in the last episode was surely the bushfire. The fact that you know Sydney, you can't for large chunks of the last month, you haven't been able to breathe outside in Sydney. It's been like what eleven times the, the um, dangerous level of toxins in the air, um, and the fact that the coalition have pushed for this extraordinary overreach of religious power over the rest of us. You would think that those are things that an opposition could stand up and go and push back and say to people, "These people are not on your side. They're letting you. They're letting the the country burn and you not be able to breathe. We're going to tackle it, but this is they're off. They're asleep at the wheel, and all they're concerned about is trying to give 
the worst people in the country. Um, probably Labor can't say that the... Well, no, they can. They can separate out. This isn't about normal religious people. This is about the people who hate LGBTI people. They put it... Eric Robetz is stand up there and they say this is about... This is, this is you know, a quid pro quo that we, we get because the gays got something after a painful public vote. You know, this is, you know, it's fair. They got something because they won this vote we made them do. And we should get something because we lost that vote. And Labor should be standing up there and saying this is a terrible idea and it hurts all of us and arguing it. And instead they're playing dead on it, which means that when it eventually does come to the crunch, they haven't built any kind of support back the other way. The only thing that people have been hearing is the conservative um, pitch. And so then if they, they either go along with the conservatives or they lose because they haven't done their job, which is arguing a case they've just laid line you know if you don't if you don't actually argue back and i do i do get that the green you know it'd be lovely if everybody all of us could do it. like i i do i feel like well i feel like we do have to engage like if we don't engage and we just let them win on those topics that's what labor's been doing on refugees that's what been doing on each of these these things that have now just become if you cede the ground to them they just move to the next one they keep pushing until eventually you but have also, yes, you, you, i mean we get Again, I'm not saying that the religious... Obviously, if these sort of like laws come through, they, they can be very detrimental to people, and I, they're completely unfair. Um, uh, I just think that the way we engage in these debates... I think bushfires is a really good example, right? We could just... Well, I, I agree with you. Why isn't Albo, for example... I mean, the real answer is because he's hopeless. But Gosh, why isn't Albo... Um, uh, on television every day just saying and calling a press conference every day and going on radio every single day going Australia is on fire mm. Australia is on fire we will not rest until we've done everything possible that we can to stop Australia being on fire the fireys want more support they're having to crowdfund why is right. Labor not so, capitalising on that? But this is my point is that's how I'd attack it rather than be talking about climate change rather than again being bogged in these ideas Climate change would be part of what I was talking yeah. about. You can't not talk about it. You don't go out there but and I've been talking about it going, here's what we care about. We care about the fact that Australia is on fire and that is clearly a major issue. We are going to do everything we can to address that issue. Here are the things that we have to address. We have to address better support to volunteer firefighters. We have to support better, more blah, 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 firefighters. We need to support what our survival bubble are, how we're going to educate people, what we're going to do about, how we're going to work with these communities. We're going to address that. And of course, we're going to have to address what we're doing that's contributing to these fires. And climate change would be part of it, but the argument wouldn't be about climate change. The argument would be about what we're practically doing is Australia is on fire and we want to put out the fires. And here are the five or six things we need to do to put out the fires. And some of them will be feet on ground holding a hose. And some of them will be, you know, making sure the community has better fire plans. And some of them will be giving extra funding to these communities and blah, blah, blah. And some of them will be having a giant, I'm going to, John Farnham's agreed to come and do a giant concert where we're going to raise a whole bunch of money for the fight, fighters. And yes, I, we are going to every day go into Parliament and have this conversation around climate change because we believe this, this and this. Yeah, we're going to stand up and you know. launch into it be like, of course these, these fires... Of course, they've been caused by climate change and the decisions that were made, you know, ten years ago, um, and we should deal with the the issues. So we're not dealing with this again another lot in ten years. So that's part of it. So of course, it's about climate change, but we're, what we're doing today is what's on the ground. But but always, without having the argument, simply just be like reinforce it because yeah. it's the thing we have to tackle. So people need to connect the two things, or we will never do anything about it. 
and then go on to the so like just almost like at the start of a sentence be like of course this is about climate change and the decisions that were made 10 years ago um but today we're talking about this and we will at the moment it feels like to me to voters like you know somebody's there with their house on fire and Labor's saying it's climate change. And no, they're not. Labor's not saying it's... No, well, but I mean, you know, whatever. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, the point being, the left saying it's climate change and the right saying it's not climate change instead of dealing with the person who's like, hey, my house is on fire. And at the moment, our entire house is on fire. And it's not... It's December. It's not getting better. Hmm. It's This is going to be a horrible, you know, few months, probably. You would think that it would be something that Labor wouldn't have been able to cover. Like, if, the, if Scummo was competent... He would have immediately been giving, you know, funding to the firefighters. He would like have chucked extra money in. He would have done it, and then it would have been really hard for Labor to come back in and be and, and criticise him for it. But instead of that, he was like, "No, no, the firefighters are perfectly happy going out there, and they don't need anything more." Like he made, which is an unforced error, and that's the thing. Like you're right. I think Labor should have been. It's, it's astonishing to me that Labor wasn't able to capitalise on that because. It's a gimme. Like public well, funding for those things yeah, is something I, Labor should be. I agree with you. If, if now we're talking about politics, what? Scott Morrison made a, a fucking political mistake, mm. which was that he thought that this was still a debate about climate change. And so he kind of doubled down on the fireys are fine and it's not as bad and blah, 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 because he didn't want to lose the climate change debate. And in that moment when he got it wrong, because it's not about climate change, it's about Australia being on fire at the moment, regardless of where climate change fits into that. We, we do need to tie them together because no, otherwise no, no, we'll, we need I'm to... I'm saying right yeah. now that's not what... No one cares about... Like, I mean, of course, people care about climate change, but in regard to this, but the point being when things are on fire, the first thing you've got to do is put out the fire, right? And well, I think part Labor of the point had, is that we're never going to put out the fire because yeah. it's like continual now. But Labor had an opportunity to... Yeah. You can't argue about we're never going to put out the fire or what the fire's going to be in five years. Let's put out the fire now and also put in a place a plan that we don't have more fires or when there is fire. Like, as in, like, and that's what I meant about the climate change debate as well. You use it as part of the... You know, having an argument about coal today isn't going to put out the fire in that person's house. The argument about coal is part of the ongoing, you know, to make sure that the house isn't on fire again in five years. But right now, there's an opportunity to put out the fire in that person's house. And Labor missed the opportunity yeah. that was presented to them where they could suddenly go, yes, we believe, like you said. Of yes, course it's that, course but it's here's this. what we're doing today. But, or, and, of course yeah. it's that, and this is what we're doing today. But this is what we're doing today. Yeah. All right, so... To come to sort of pull this together, we've sort of talked... I don't know that we have hit any kind of optimism. Will, hope. How do we... What hope do you have for, like, that we're actually... I mean, or unless unless there is no hope and we're effectively no, no, the frog, I, the frog I, in the I, boiling I, water. All right, humans, how, where do, where do you find, find the hope? find a way. And I think that what we've got to do, though, is we've got to stay, take a step back from the attention economy because this constant drama of the world in which we live, it is manufactured to keep us looking. The, you know, the 24-hour news cycle is now the 24-second news cycle and, you know, or the 24-word news cycle, you know, in a tweet, and um, nothing have, ever gets resolved. Things we, just constantly go from one argument to another, and while we're having all these minor arguments, the big things are slipping out from beyond our control. So we've got to step away from some of the day-to-day drama, and we've got to step back and have a genuine look at how we want to live our lives. And we've been living our lives wrong, and it's going to take a pretty major, you know, addressing of, you know, particularly the ramifications of technology because this is the worst time for our world to be, you know, burning in the way that it's burning because we're also at a point in the advancement of technology where we just have no regular, you know, truth-seeking system whereby we can verify facts and facts don't really mean anything anymore. And at the one time in our society where we've 
we most need facts. We have the least, uh, you know, desire, you know, or appetite to hear them or understand them or see what is actually true. So that's we have we have entities that are very powerful and committed to the opposite. So, but is there hope? Yeah, absolutely, there's hope. But I think that. Well, how do we push back against that? Part of it is surrendering ourselves. And the older I get, the more I think that we've got to concentrate a little bit more on what we can control versus things that putting out all our energy into things that we can't control. Mm -hmm. And I think that we as a general, you know, spend a lot of time fighting losing arguments and being angry about things that will never affect our lives in any way or being... Um, that's not to say that you shouldn't care about those things. I just think sometimes the best way to address them is by starting in your own house, in your own world, and how you present to the world and what you're, you know, to be genuine about your perspectives and desires. And instead of saying the things that you think you're meant to say, say the things that you actually believe and, you know, engage, you know, in being a human being. And I think that once you do that, like, there's a lot of hope away from the machine, you know? The kind of the the news machine, the politics of the machine, the pageantry and fucking drama of that. If you step away from it a bit, if you start to look at history a little bit more and read a little bit more and be with nature a little bit more, and there are people looking for solutions all over the place. But we, you have to kind of underhook yourself from the day to day drama to actually have time to think of a solution to something, to have time to implement a program, to have time if you're looking at the 24-hour news cycle or pole to pole as a politician then of course you're not going to fix anything you know the greens to you know, become the, the country of the party would have to go here's our plan for the next 15 years you know? i'm just happy with them saying this is where our philosophy this is our, our philosophy on these things and that's how we assess issues so we you know when something is up and we push our issues as well but when something comes up we will you know, if if it's a, if it's on an issue of climate change, will be it'll be one that moves towards action. Or if it's an issue of equality, it'll be the one that moves towards you know equality for public services and so forth. If it's an issue, you know, what so that because I don't think that you can anticipate. Oh God, at least at least we don't have like five year terms like in in the UK. But these decisions are being made by the people who are like elected at these elections, and I can't we can't anticipate everything that's going to come up in three years but we can anticipate i can anticipate as a person who's voting for a party with a consistent viewpoint yeah. i can anticipate that on those issues they're going to go the way i can anticipate how they're going to vote right. on these things here are my core principles yeah here here is what we're about and so you could have a guess when it comes to the issue this issue what side will be on this or what the general gist of our policy you know I can't tell you the exact nature of what our policy will be, but you know that our policy is that every kid gets educated. So yeah. in this uh, you know, position that you've just brought up, we will be on the side of that makes sure that we're closer to every kid being educated than the one that makes sure that we're further away from that. Yeah. Um, actually, it's kind of, they're kind of... I can't think that the other... Because you've got the two parties at a broad church that are kind of... You couldn't say that about any of them because you don't necessarily know which side of them is going to... Yeah. And even the other smaller parties like the Nats, you don't really know. Like, I suppose now you know that they'll just go with whichever the big agribusiness or the mining company is going to do over the top of farmers. Yeah. But it's like... I'm always, I'm always lucky that there's a... Progressives are almost lucky that there is a party that is consistently pitching that side and you know where they're going to go. Like, if you were a socially conservative but progressive economic person... 
I don't know who you'd vote. Like you don't, you know, the different combinations. Like it's kind of if it's kind of like we need more of the parties. That anyway, that's not there's not a source of hope. That's just political. Th- I'm getting back away from the topic of, of parties. Do I think that the system? I mean, obviously the system is important because big decisions that you know, operate in our society are made by the system. But do I think that you know individual responsibility? And I don't mean that in a sort of you know libertarian sort of way, but I mean that in a does everybody have the capacity to affect the world in a positive way? I believe, I choose hope. I choose hope because, like, we're just human beings. All of us are incidental. Every single human being who's ever lived is incidental. And if the whole whole of humanity dies out, then, you know... <laughs> this, is a, this is a chilling version of a view of hope. Well, all... <laughs> but yeah. the truth of it is that that's all human beings have ever been, an accident in the corner of the universe or, you know, whatever... And I guess his Ralph Lau believes something different, but, you know... He believes something more horrifying. He believes that we're, it's deliberate, mm. but also there's a, a malevolent entity out there that will torture us if we cross some... if we ar- break arbitrary rules. Like, that's t- yeah. that's much scarier than that there's nothing out there. And as far as we know, every single other person who's believed that and who's believed what I believe and who's believed what the Buddhists believe and who's believed what the Muslims believe, they're all just dead. They're all just human beings who were who were alive and then they died and even the most special of them still had a myriad of flaws and insecurities there is no human being who's ever lived who wasn't you know flawed and complicated and even the greatest and most inventive minds and people who've come up with things that have revolutionized human beings they shat and they ate and they died and that will happen to all of us and Probably at some stage it will happen to humanity, whether it happens in the next 50 years oh my because goodness. of climate change or whether it happens in another 100 years because of like artificial intelligence or perhaps it, we just evolve in a way that kind of incorporates those things and humanity survives, but not all of humanity survives. Climate change, the most likely climate change thing for me is that, you know, yes, absolutely, you know, the climate you know, destroys you know, millions and millions of people's lives, but that some version of humanity will survive. Yeah, the people, the, the yeah, the rich will, <laughs> the, the, you know, if you're at the wealthier end, you'll be you'll. But so, really, yeah. all I can have a say in is the next maximum fifty years. I'll tell right? you, in terms of the the if, the idea that we can try to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, and try to do our our part, and we're talking on a podcast to other people, presumably at the moment. Like, is there in terms of, insofar as we can have an impact on through this conversation through other conversations and so forth um is there something that you would feel would be a a a, a constructive thing that, that would make you know if somebody listened to it we, if everybody listening to this listened to it we'd move more in a positive direction over the next year or so because 2020 you know 2019 was a bit of a shit show uh for a better so for a 2020 that results in less human suffering, you know, more compassion for the people who are, who are being screwed and, um, you know, a, a, a greater chance of us uh, avoiding that kind of devastating climate change outcome, for example, but but even just in terms of the country, like approaches that will mean that people are, fewer people are, you know, starving to death on new stuff that's so far below the poverty okay, line. Okay, here's what I would say. I reckon this would help. Make a list of the top three or the top five, it doesn't really matter, things that you think are most important in life. And for a year, concentrate on just those things. So, 
you know, instead of saying, you know, having that big list of going, you know, I care about refugees and I care about the environment, I care about blah, blah, blah. It doesn't mean that those other things aren't important. They could be on your list if that, that's the thing that's pissing well, you off the most, I suppose. They, they may well be the top three. Right. Like, but the point being that by ranking them, everybody has a rank. It doesn't mean that, you know, for some, there will be someone else who puts climate change at number one and you put refugees at number one. Right? That's fine. You know, but you just put your rank together and then live your life through that prism a little bit more of what you actually prioritise. So if number one on your list wasn't watching Netflix on TV, number one on your list was, you know, doing something positive about, you know, Australia's refugee situation, then when you're sitting down to watch another series on Netflix, instead spend that time doing something you know, to whatever it might be. Unless know. Netflix wants to sponsor the podcast, in which case, ignore that advice and we'll be encouraging people. Well, my point being, if your number one priority is to watch heaps of Netflix shows, fine, good, live it through that. But have a genuine sense about what it is that you prioritise yeah. and then give the appropriate amount of time and energy to that thing that you prioritise. Like, if you say, you know, if you say what is really important to me is making more podcasts, then... You know, when you look at your little list and it's like number two on your list, then why are you doing something that's number five on your list? And I would say that the political implication of that is write down what is actually genuinely important to you. Not what you, not what society thinks is important, not what the current debate in the news cycle says that you should think is important. If you're in charge for a day, what would the, yeah. and you only could do would, three things, yeah. what would they? And then vote that way. Vote for the party that best represents the things that you actually care about most in the world rather than what everybody else is telling you is important. Just be honest. Be completely honest with yourself. Have a genuine think about what you prioritise and think is important in life and then genuinely vote for the party and person that best represents those things that you most prioritise and let's see what the world looks like when people are just honest about what it is that they think the world should look like and what they want to put their energy into because... You know, Netflix and these things are tricks by those big multinationals to stop us from... They want us to keep watching episodes of Netflix. That's their business model, you know? They don't want you wasting bloody time going and volunteering for refugees when you can be watching their Netflix program. So they can some of them some are data. very good. Oh, don't get me wrong. You're not allowed to... This isn't a system where you're not allowed to watch Netflix. Netflix can be on your list. The point is that it's your list. I'm not making up the list for you. That's what I would say to people is you work out what is important in your life and then act by the principles that you have just worked out that are important. And let's see what the world looks like then rather than the world where we all get caught up in having to have an opinion about things that we didn't know that we had to have an opinion about until today. Well, thank you, Will, for coming and doing such a... It's a marathon episode. I'm very grateful for your time. It is very much appreciated. That's all right. I'm going to um, roll from this into a toe flop, so it'll be a pretty different conversation. <laughs> I don't know. We could... So people can obviously find you on the toe flop that you're about to record. Uh, and uh, would you, anything you want to uh, direct to uh, Philosophy, which is my other podcast, and um, I'm touring all of 2020 in Australia and maybe some overseas places, but. There are a bunch of Australian dates already on uh, sale, so if people want to come and see me, uh, you know, uh, go to comedy.com.au and there's a link there. And if there are not shows on sale near where you are, there's even a little page you can go to and just put in where you live 
and then you get, um, if I am coming to your area, they'll like send you an email or something to tell you that I'm coming your way. And if people would like to support the podcast, thank you very much to everyone who's subscribing through Patreon. Um, we are very grateful for some new subscribers uh, since the, uh, I would like to say, dignified plea for financial support that we put in at the end of last week. Other people might less charitably call it a, a uh, rather undignified and um, pathetic plea for support. Yeah. Oh, support what I would say on that, which is, you know, like you do this all the time and you've been creating content and this podcast for a very long time, you know, well, in this form and in its previous form. And that creation of content has value. You put time and energy and, you know, resources into making this thing. And we've been conned a little again by, because you know who does well on a podcast, you know, the networks and the, you know, Apple who have like, you know, all these people going to the iTunes page every day and all these, you know, multinational corporations. In fact, everybody's, yeah, does well out of podcasts apart from the people who are creating the content. And I love this system in that there's a beautiful thing about like the Patreon model, you know, these, which is the idea of if people think that this has value, ask yourself, you know, what sort of value you think it has and then contribute an amount of money that, you know, is commensurate to that value. That's a nice system. You know, Jeremy, you make something, the audience can listen to it and go, oh, well, I would miss this. I'm happy to put in $5 a month or make a donation of 50 bucks to make sure that this thing that I like keeps coming out. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a cool thing to do. So yes, absolutely support the podcast. Thank you very much, everybody who has and 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 we did and the everybody who's just come on board. It, it makes a huge difference. And also, thank you to the people who were supporting the podcast, but have had and there have been some people who've done it very generously and then for very various financial reasons can't do it any longer. And we're extremely grateful for everything that you've done as well. So thank you to you. thank you to everybody who's given it a positive review on iTunes. And if you haven't. Uh, very much appreciate those they help people find the podcast uh, otherwise um, thank you Will for being back on the podcast thank you <laughs> I enjoy these chats because I never really know what we're going to talk about or what we're going to like and I often don't know what I think until we have these chats because it's like it's like that's interesting I didn't realise I was so passionate I felt like I was quite passionate about that idea you got fired up when, when I genuinely have never really had a conversation about that before like it it felt like a thing that I, I, if people are listening, it might feel like, oh, Will obviously has talked about that before and had this. Like, I was like, no, no, it was really just, that's why I like chatting with you on this podcast because often you're just like, it's not, even that, I would love to encourage people if we're talking about things that are hopeful. Can we get back to just being able to have big theoretical conversations about how things may or may not work without them having to be right or wrong? I've probably said a lot of things on this podcast that are just absolutely ridiculous ideas, but... I, I'm very happy to, you know, have a conversation with someone later where they go, that's really ridiculous, and this is why that's a completely ridiculous idea. But I like the space where we can have those fresh these things out, revive. And right? part of what we talked about at the beginning being that you can develop an idea. Right. Like just because you've thought something previously doesn't mean that you can't. When, I, when I'm not saying when I when I'm criticizing people who. You know the criticism of the left does of, of the center center left of being like, oh, you've sold out and you've abandoned your principles. I don't have any problem with people developing ideals and thinking something through and coming up with a better idea of it and so forth. Like, I, I have an objection for people just going along with something because it's too hard pushing what they really believe. But, yeah, working through things and developing things, and which you see comedians, good good comedians like you do this, and, they, you, and they're, they're bad ones who just, like, just insist on the stuff that they used to do. They won't update it, but people who actually are willing to reconsider and, and develop it, like, that's what really, that's so valuable and it's so worthwhile. But it's and also exciting. 
Yeah. Like to be able to go, hey, I used to, I was trying to achieve this and in retrospect that is not a good way of achieving that anymore. But can I learn from that way that I used to do this to learn a better way to do it now and to build on that? I just don't see how that should be something that we think is a flaw. It's like when politicians get in trouble for flip-flopping. Now, there is a thing called flip-flopping where, you know, genuinely, like you said, for, you know, other reasons, they might completely change their opinion. But if a politician's position is, 15 years ago, I believe this, but now I have all this different information, and so now I believe this... Then, yeah. Right. That's exactly well, it's almost like, what. What's the point of life? Like you're yeah. you're you're a, a a an entity that is taking in information and processing it. If that information isn't changing you, if you're not taking that information, if if you're going through life, um, I, I had some older people at one point be like, "No, we had this view ten years ago. We're never going to change it. Oh, no, I've I've had this view. I'm consistent about it. I'm going to stick to it. Like I I'm not going to. I've been. I don't. I don't need to change. I'm I'm, I'm same. Believe the same things now as I did ten years ago. I'm like, what the hell was the point of those ten years of life? You've had all this information coming in and you've not changed or developed at all. You're proud of that. Like I would say that, for example, if like a comedian's looking at their shows from ten years ago and and now and they can see that there's been a, a change and that there's that. Almost, it's like it's almost like that's your score of how well you've done as a human being. That in that time period, you've been willing to grow and develop. Like that changes your growth. Right. And like that's such an like that's a thing to be proud of. If anything, not not ashamed of. Like being able to go, yeah, okay, I have learned better. I understand more about the world. I've heard from more ex- people. George Carlin, the comedian, only started doing the sort of material that we associate with being. George Carlin, when he was in his sort of mid-40s, 50 maybe even. Like, before that, he was a very much a suit-and-tie, old-school, stand-up comedian. Now, if you, if you believe that you, you should just be what you were when you first started out and you should never change, then the world would have been deprived of George Carlin. And sometimes, like, Carlin's actually one of the few people who a lot of his stuff actually has held up pretty well. But there are still some things that, you know, by the nature of them, seem like outdated ideas but it's not because the idea was bad at the time it's because society has changed in a way that that it's like when you see if you've never seen an old movie like the godfather or the matrix or something and then you see them after you've seen all the movies that have ripped them off and what was special about them Mm. isn't because but it wasn't that the godfather or the matrix are these great seminal films still that changed everything you've seen all the imitations and the other things so you don't appreciate it in the same way it's the same with that old comedy. Like, when you've seen a whole bunch of Bill Hicks knockoffs, you know, revisiting that Bill Hicks material, some of it you'd find quite, you know, confronting and problematic. But that doesn't mean that of the time, Bill wasn't a revolutionary thinker. I'd like to think that in this day and age, Bill and George and these sort of guys wouldn't be, you know, arguing that political correctness has killed comedy. I, I would like to think that they'd be the sort of guys who'd be doing the same sort of you know, incredibly transgressive, interesting, intelligent work now that they were doing back then. They wouldn't be going, I should be able to make the jokes I was making in the the 70s or the 90s. They would be going, I am making the George Carlin of today style joke. Yeah. Dope. Full circle. (laughs) If you listen through the whole thing, we started talking about it and we came back to it. It's almost like we planned it that way. (laughs) Thank you all. Uh, Thank you, Robin Gray, for the music and Alex Lum for the artwork. And we will see you all for Christmas. Bye. Bye.
Podcast.